Sadie with Nick Menezes and Dane McLean. Live chat about everything cinema, from new releases, iconic films, and plenty more for you movie lovers. Live for CMRU.ca. And now, to the men behind the mic. So we're on Sin City. This is the season finale. It's been a long season. 2020 is almost over. It's been a weird year for everyone. But it couldn't have been any more interesting on Sin City this year. So many good movies that we've talked about. And we have a returning guest, Emmanuel. This is his special episode where we'll really talk to him about his career his uh, journey so far yes and uh talk about the best movies of all time so this is going to be an oh, amazing yes. time we've saved awesome. the best for last it took us a while but we finally made it so emmanuel you are probably to me and dane secretly our vip guest here on sin city <laughs> like our guests they love your episodes with us but yet they know very little to nothing about you. Well, it's time to change their minds. Let's now revisit the journey of Emmanuel Akinola. So, who starts first? You start first, Dane. Would you like to go with the first question? Sure. Um, so I have quite a few questions, but I'll start with the the, the main one. Is is just essentially um, when did you realize that filmmaking was the path that you wanted to take in your life? Oh, uh, that's a good one. Well, I've always enjoyed watching movies. Um, I think it was very early on, like when I was a kid. I remember in 2003, I dragged my mom to this, um, this local filmmaker was in Houston and he was having an event at a, a library. So I dragged my mom to it. It wasn't what I expected, but I really liked how, um, that guy was passionate about what he was doing. And I'm like, wow, and like, that was something I really wanted to do. But I slept on it. And like, it wasn't until like 2006, like I said in our Nolan episode, where I saw Syriana Inside Man and like, I just knew I had to do, be a screenwriter. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. How, how old were you at that time in 2006, if you don't mind me? No, that's fine. Uh, let me see. That was should be. Let me say it's 2020, so 2006. That's 14 years. So I want to say I'm 27 now. So I would have been 13. 13. Wow. Yeah, about 13. That's impressive. Mm. Yeah, very formative time. Like I think for me too, that was around that time as well. I would say a little bit later, maybe, but yeah. So. Before that, did you find film to be, um, did, like, did it kind of go from just being entertainment to being like an actual art? And, and did you really, was it kind of that transition when you were realizing just all the potential things that you can do within the film? Is that kind of that realization you had? Yeah, like at first I just saw it as entertainment. Like I love watching movies, but mm -hmm. then um, there was something about those two movies, Syrian and Inside Man, that just felt like they were more than entertainment. Like they were, they were actually, you could get something from those movies. Like they were talking about things that was, that I didn't realize I wanted, that I didn't realize that spoke to me. 
like Syriana spoke about like um, this is I wanted when I was younger I wanted to be in the CIA so um, so like Syriano had like this guy that was in the CIA and they were kind of you know exploring what they did you know the shady stuff that they would do and um, and then Inside Man it just spoke to me about like you know different races because New York is very diverse so it spoke, even though it was a bank heist film it was speaking about um, race relations and things like that so that resonated with me mm, very cool amazing yeah that's that's really interesting I think uh, just relating that back to my own personal experience I, I, I definitely have to agree with you like it's really when you start noticing um, just the layers within film that I think it's, it becomes more interesting and not just a form of passing the time but actually studying and and learning uh, learning more about our world and society people and psychology i think that's that was the main sort of draw for me as well so that's really interesting i have to agree with you on that one yeah that's to me the essence of films it's basically both one part entertaining and instructive so i would have to strongly agree with you on that notion big d and for my other question, who was the biggest or who are some, in this case, who are some big inspirations for you to begin your path into filmmaking? Ooh, that's a big question. Um, well, I, I grew up watching, like, my mom would always go to Blockbuster and, you know, rent movies. So I, I remember watching Hitchcock movies and, like, uh, the universal horror movies like Dracula, Frankenstein, Wolfman, and Preacher um, from the Black Lagoon. Um, so Hitchcock was Hitchcock was a major influence, and Spielberg too. I, I remember watching a lot of Spielberg movies growing up. Jaws, E.T., Indiana Jones. So those two guys were basically the the two biggest. Oh, and Spike Lee. I watched a few of Spike Lee's movies. Wow. Mm -hmm. So it have to be those three guys. Yeah, those three guys. And then I watched movies that, you know, people don't really like today. Like, I was obsessed with Batman and Robin, even though that movie is terrible. <laughs> and and um, what else would I watch? I watched Fight Club, Toy Story. Yeah, just a lot of classic movies. Wow. The classics are usually the best to start with, I'd say. Really good yeah, choices yeah, too. Yeah, and I was just I just had a lot of free time and that's the thing I've noticed. Like in my life I had a lot of free time. So that made me, you know, dream about movies and wanna make up uh plan out movies that I wanna write and stuff like that. So it was usually around like summertime, like in the next the last, the last few years of my life, I want to say starting from 2006 to like 2013 at least, I just those summers I would just spend just thinking about movies, planning movies. I had, I had a lot of free time. Impressive. Wow. That's really some great inspirations, Emmanuel. And yes, relating to me, Steven Spielberg was one of the earliest directors whose films I've watched. They really drew me into the ever-growing world of film, for sure. 
Yeah, Spielberg, he's a... I mean, he created the first blockbuster. I mean, you have Jaws. That was like the first tentpole blockbuster. And uh, and then his friend, George Lucas, did the same thing too with Star Wars. So they were very influential. Like, I, I think if you talk to a lot of directors that are around our ages, a little bit older, they'll probably say they were, they were the inspiration. Agreed, yeah. Like, without Steven Spielberg, our, like Steven Spielberg defined most of our childhoods with his films such as E.T., Indiana Jones, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, to name a few. Yeah, Close, I need to rewatch Close Encounters of the Third Kind, but that was a weird movie, man. That was... Because, like, it, it, it was... It was an alien story, but it was just told so differently. Like, it was just amazing. And then he had the music when... <laughs> when the aliens came down that's true dun, 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 dun. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's right yeah and of course it's not just credit given to Spielberg but John Williams too who often collaborates with Spielberg without his music all of these our childhood memories would be incomplete yeah I mean John Williams was a huge inspiration for me I mean I remember watching the original Superman when I was a kid And to this day, I love that opening theme song when they go to Krypton. Oh, man. Dun, 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 dun. Nice, man. <laughs> like, you know you're in for a good movie. Oh, yeah, definitely. Would you... Next question goes to Dane. Would you like to give up the next question to Mr. EA? <laughs> for sure. Uh, something that I'm kind of uh, always interested in with a lot of people is, you hear it quite often, is um, people often say like there was someone in their family too that might have been a big influence as far as maybe they were a film buff or film lover or they might have actually been a photographer a videographer filmmaker um whatever right like there's some usual like familiar or familial um influence from what i've noticed from a lot of people that i've talked to about uh film is that the case with you do you have someone in your family that's really uh kind of was the one that opened your eyes to, to the world of cinema? Yeah, I had one. Um, my brother, he uh, he re he's really big into like martial arts films and like, and uh, I think, well, I don't want to say this. I want to say Asian culture, but he's really big into martial arts films. And um, 2005, when I was in summer school at my uh, middle school, he got me a screenplay book for The Last Samurai because he loves that movie. And, and I started reading them. First, I was like, what is this? Like, oh, and then I realized, oh, this is the script for the movie. And I just love watching. I love reading it. And that's what kind of opened me up to, like, screenwriting how, and how cool it was. When I, even when I was a kid, I always thought screenwriting was the coolest thing ever. Like, writing movies, that's, that's like, that's awesome to me. Like, yeah. the fact that people... I always thought films were just made, but the fact that you have people that are really planning the movies out and like telling characters what to say, that was that was mind blowing. I mean that that was incredible. Yeah, yeah it's like that uh, realization I had too. I agree with you. When you realize movies aren't just actors sort of talking freely. It's not it's not like real life but it's actually it's all it's all meant for a reason right like all of the dialogue is there for a reason it's not really just filler it's not just uh 
casual conversation. So that was interesting, realizing that as a young person, that everything that's going on in this movie is of importance. You have to pay attention. You should listen closely to everything, right? So I think that also got me interested in writing films and um, realizing just how free it would, how much freedom you have as a writer. Like you can create whatever world you you imagine. So it's pretty much one of the most impressive jobs you could have just as far as you're creating an entire world and uh, and you're encapsulating a piece of life in two hours or an hour and an hour and a half or however long even a short film. So it's really uh, endless, endless opportunity. Yeah, it's endless, endless possibilities. It's it's just incredible. It's just the fact that I get to control what people say or what the the story demands, and it's like wow. It's like it's like putting your own stamp on on existence. On it's it's something about it that's just incredible. Absolutely, yeah. That to relate to a similar experience. Yes, since last year, I have like. It has always been my dream to be part of the film industry. However, in recent years, I found myself, much like you, Dane and Emmanuel, drawn to the screenwriting side because I feel I feel my capacity more as a storyteller. Because I've been told by several of my classmates and family that I am a pretty imaginative guy, so I figured that telling stories is where I really belong to, as far as the film industry goes. Yeah, I had a big imagination when I was a kid. I was, I was just so into movies, man. Like I would act out scenes and like recite dialogue. And I remember I was obsessed with Lord of the Rings. At first, I was scared of Lord of the Rings because of the ring rates. <laughs> But then I watched the film. I'm like, wow, this movie is actually pretty good. So yeah, I was obsessed with Lord of the Rings. Um, I would always go to the fan websites and stuff. Lord, uh, Lord of the Rings.net or whatever. No, the One Ring.net. Mm, and yeah, that kind of. And I would always, even when I was a younger eight and a, a younger person, I would always watch behind the scenes of the movies I liked. So my mom, my mom encouraged that. She like she liked doing that. And so yeah, it was really it was really my my mom and dad that introduced me to like film because they would buy all these movies, and then my dad would buy like all these amazing movies too he he got the star wars movies the 1990 version where a lot of people don't like it but george lucas made his um special editions so i watched those and yeah i just remember my mom would always go rent movies and be my brothers and i we would watch them He knew I was into movies, um, so yeah, it's. I don't know. I didn't realize it was a passion I had. At first, I didn't want to do it because I felt like, you know, it's not a 
what do filmmakers do? Like, how do they contribute to society? That type of thing. But, but yeah, I mean, um, in terms of education, my paths and colleges, I just turned, I turned back to it, and I was like, yeah, maybe I should try this out. You know, and yeah, it was hard. It was a hard decision, but um, I, I think it's for the better, though. Like, I feel, I actually feel like this is what I'm supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Impressive, yes, really amazing stuff. And yeah, you, a deaf film has a lot to contribute in society because even with this pandemic, pandemic or not, cinema has always been around. It, it's not a dying industry. It will always be there, and I don't see it. We don't see it going away anytime soon. Yeah, like you know, you have the recent issues with the theaters closing down because of COVID, and it's like. I don't know. I think once COVID gets under control, I mean, the theaters will theaters will come back. It's just some small ones might not be able to come back. But I mean, even if I mean, look at it. I look at it as even if we get we got rid of theaters, movies will still be on our streaming services. Mm-hmm. So movies won't entirely go away. Exactly. But I think, me personally, I don't think the theaters theater going experience will go away. I think it'll stay. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, I think even I mean, it's hard to say far off into the future, but I think at least for yeah many years ahead, I think the theater experience will will stay the same because it is such a such a communal thing, and uh, you know it's it's an experience that I think is just. Depending on the film, it's it's usually a better experience um, than it is at home. Honestly, like I think I wouldn't say all of the time, but a lot of the time, if it's a very visual, uh, if it's a very um, auditory experience in the film, I think watching it in the theaters is is going to be better. And I don't think you can replace that in home. Or I mean, you could if you have really good speakers and a really good home theater, but I don't I don't think <laughs> I. I don't know. The average person, that's not really uh, possible, right? So, yeah, we don't all have like a Tarantino home theater or something built in dark. So, yeah. Like, there's something about the communal experience of being in a movie theater and experiencing it with other people. It's just something, it's a social lubricant, it's a social uh, etiquette. It's like part of what, how, we, how we mingle as human beings. It's very uh, uh, integral to how we act socially. So, I, yeah, I don't see it going away. And no, you can't replicate it in a home theater. You can't. Mm-hmm. Very true. Very true. Yes. And um, to continue this interview, um, there are many many different sections in the film industry. We've got directing, editing, art direction, and screenwriting, to name a few. But out of all those different categories in the film industry, what made you, you know, choose screenwriting as your top passion in the industry, Emmanuel? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I guess because I want, I like the idea of knowing the mechanics, like knowing, knowing like how the film operates. And, and I've always liked telling stories. I've always liked 
Um, yeah, I've always liked the idea of stories, and writing seemed like something I could do because I was always good at writing. I would always do well in English classes. And it's just something about screenwriting that just seems cool. Like, it just seems cool because I feel like having the whole movie from your head, it just seems like that'd be, it's just something that's, that's not, I don't know, it's something about it that just seems super interesting. You know, that you're creating this whole world. Yeah, it's, it's, you're building a world for actors to inhabit. And it just, it's, to me, it's a great feeling. Like, you know, that I'm in charge, I guess in the sense of I'm in charge of the story and how I want it to be told. But also, it's, it's something I can give to other people and they can experience it. And so, yeah, it was... I guess it was because I chose screenwriting because because it was something that that was like I like the idea of going behind the curtain behind the movie and like being that being that person that that's like a conductor or like a person that can um, can form the movie. So that's kind of what the appeal came to me. I see. Yeah. 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 I think there's something really special about being able to essentially you're contributing something that has never existed before. Like even if your short film, your film has similarities to another film, it's never going to be it can never be the exact same as anything else. Like it's everything you create as an artist in any medium is, is something completely new based on it being from you and your own your own individual unique um, experience and your own vision so it's it's really like it's pretty much the closest thing to being able to well I mean there's other forms of like inventing things of course like inventing products inventing physical material objects but also or like ideas or services or applications whatever but like filmmaking is like you're literally not to say it's it becomes like a commodity like in an economic sense but it sort of it has that potential that you're actually like creating an entire like you said a world you're creating a experience and then potentially like if you you get enough support and enough fans enough viewers it's it's you're become, you're creating like a brand or even like uh, uh, I don't know like it's really interesting how movies can can slowly or in some cases like Star Wars or other films that they literally become an entire like brand and identity it's, and it bounds people or binds people together it's unbelievable actually when you think about it just how there's few other I think things in the world that you're able to do that very few other things so yeah and I like the I like the anonymity anonymity of the screenwriter too. Like a lot of people, like um, the screenwriter is kind of the unsung hero, and I like that. I like mm. the fact that yeah, film is more of a director's um, medium, but you know I like that indispensable part where like this humble or this unseen person is really the reason that this film is so good. You know, like I just like that idea of. 
you know, being that person that's kind of behind the scenes, you know, um, making a great movie. And the director is, of course, the public face. But, um, yeah, there's something about it that's interesting and intriguing. You know, I mean, screenwriters, they do get some recognition, but not, not as much as directors. And I like that. I like the fact that I can kind of be an- anonymous with it, you know? Yes. Um, yes. Something about that that's cool. I agree, yes. Like, film... The whole world of cinema is about passion, and that passion in art comes from the freedom. And I think that screenwriting is the one where you have the most freedom to make your own choices, to create your own world. In this case, the, your, your paper for writing script is your own canvas, and you are the maker of your own world, your, your own destiny, basically. Yeah, it's, it's really incredible. I mean, like Dan was saying, it's just creating huge possibilities of world world building. That's that's what appeals to me, the world building. And just making a good story. Yeah, I just feel like that's that's my passion. That's what I want to do. Amazing. And you're doing a good job so far. I've read your Justice League script, the first one. Good job, by the way. Really well done. Can't wait for it to be adapted on the big screen. And I've just started reading your JL2 script. So far, so good. And one more final note before we move on to our next question. When you mentioned about the whole anonymity of screenwriters and how the directors have always have the big praise and attention it remind it gives me a bit of reminders on the dynamic between orson wells and uh herman mankowitz aka mank oh yeah like that was a that was there was a lot of issues with that like um first wells made a contract where he was he was to receive all the credit but then Mankiewicz, the film kind of shows you like his, his Mankiewicz transformation into realizing, <clears throat> no, he wants credit. <clears throat> uh, in real life, I don't think we know why Mankiewicz um, changed his mind, but I guess the film posits that, you know, it was his greatest film screenplay. Like he did such a good job with it. Even his brother in the film says it's the best thing he's ever written. So I feel like um, at that time, and in, in the studio system, you know, screenwriters didn't get as much attention, and and I think Harmon Mankiewicz wanted to change that for himself, and so he, eventually, you know, Wells relented and Wells gave him the credit, even though there was a conflict, but it was resolved. But now I think. Um, Screenwriters nowadays are getting a little bit more attention. I mean, I mean, I look at the guys that wrote Avengers, the Avengers Endgame, Infinity War and Endgame. They've done tons of interviews. I mean, I've seen like, and I enjoy watching those interviews because they really go into their process. And uh, so, yeah, I'm, they're probably one of two of the biggest writers in the business. Uh, so, yeah, I think in later years recently they've been getting screenwriters have been getting more attention they always get interviews too but i still uh, i still think of it as i still see it as a director's medium 
Yes. It's really good to hear the progress they've been making as well in the notoriety in screenwriters. Looks like this is also our big shot as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, next question, uh, Dane, on to you. Yeah, so something else that um, I'm always interested in with just the complexity of life in a, in a creative career and how it's never, it just never seems to be just like such an easy point A to point B for anyone, right? Like it's just, for every, everyone's lives are just so complicated and there's so many detours and, and everything, just as far as, you know, paying the bills and, and doing everything you need to do. Like, how, how are you managing uh, or how, how have you managed sort of like the last years of your life with sort of finding time for screenwriting or has it become your full-time job or is it still something that um, you're waiting to see kind of come to fruition as a full-time job? How is that kind of on for you? I'm still waiting for it to come to fruition because I've written quite a bit of stuff. And I would always have free time to kind of do it. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a full-time job, but I have the time now to do it. Um, and in the past, I've I usually done it like, usually when I'm on holiday or during the summer. Mm-hmm. Usually that's when, because before I had school and I couldn't really do it. You know, I would have to wait till like the end of semester or something. Um, but yeah, it's it's usually when I have free time. So when I'm off, and and I do research, I read books too. So I would do that when I'm off, and um, you know, and when when I was in school, I would do it when I'm on holiday. As of now, full time job is finding a job, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, I've been able to snuck in sometime. Like, I'm, um, recently I've had, this whole year I've had free time, so mm-hmm. I was able to do, like, I think two scripts or two, two or three, because I was in, trying to enter these competitions. And, um, but yeah, it's usually when I, I try to sneak in free time when I have it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can I can relate to that because um, yeah, your your uh, your life is just like for example for me, my life and I think a lot of people I know it's just like you you can never really find like that that uh, time just to really be like an unfiltered focus on whatever you're doing. Like I, I can find that, but I have to like make that time for myself. Really, sort of build that into my day and, and really just like limit distractions and everything because I find that if you were at least for me like if I'm just to live my life casual too casually I find myself like I I feel like I'm cheating myself out of what I want to do in my passion like whether that's music or film or photography or whatever it is it's so hard to balance everything equally all your responsibilities in life but I, I really admire and I am really interested by other people's stories and how they manage that because I think it's uh, it's something that I think sometimes doesn't get talked enough or talked about enough from some directors and writers. It's just um, some of them they do give a lot of insight about that, but it is such a it's such a, an interesting journey for everyone, and everyone's journey is so unique. Like um, 
I love reading about my favorite directors, writers, their sort of like university to sort of breakthrough experience because it kind of gives you some idea of what worked or what you could do. Do you ever like, is that part of it? I, I don't know if that's just like something that um, I'm like just too obsessed with, but do you do that a lot also? Like you read tons about your favorite directors, your favorite writers and like, do you really research their lives a lot also? Oh yeah, I did that a lot with um, Jonathan Nolan yeah. and the two and the two showrunners of um, Game of Thrones. Yeah. Like I researched them. I researched uh, Dave, especially David Benoff and his journey. And those two guys, Jonathan Nolan and David Benoff, were inspirations in the sense of my writing and passion. Like... Jonathan Nolan wrote for the student newspaper at Georgetown. So I jumped at the opportunity to write on my um, school newspaper at Houston Community College. And David Benoff, he did creative writing, so I chose to do creative writing in school. Um, But that was obsessive. Like, I would read up about Christopher Nolan. And uh, in recent years, like, I want to say past five, six years. I've been looking up Alfred Hitchcock, too, a little bit. So, yeah, I do a lot of research on these guys. Um, yeah, and I take inspiration from them. Wow. Those are, like, the four main people. Jonathan Nolan, David Benoff, Alfred Hitchcock, and Christopher Nolan. Wow. Yeah. That's really amazing. amazing. Yeah. Yeah, because I find that I, I do that a lot, and then it's also sometimes I sometimes have to like tell myself not to try to compare my own personal experience to these people because we all we are also come from such a different place and a different time, different context. So it's really I find it to be like it's it's very inspiring to a point, and then I feel like okay, now I need to just forget about it. I'll just do my story, but I always kind of keep those those things from people I, I'm inspired by in the back of my mind. Like, it's okay if it's kind of rough for a little bit in my life or like I'm not fulfilling like my passion fully because maybe it happened to these other people that I really like who've gone through the same thing. So I think that can kind of help steer you back into focus. Remember that life is so, uh, so big in the grand scheme of things, right? And your passion is, it's the most important, but it's not always like the, the most active at, at, at every time, and that's perfectly fine, right? So I think that's uh, really interesting to hear. That's really cool. I'd have to. I'm sorry. You, you can say something, Manuel. Oh, like if you look at, I noticed a trend. Like if you look at screenwriters that are that are trying to break in, they always work like multiple jobs. Like Aaron Sorkin, he wrote, he did like he was a waiter, and then he did like two other jobs. And he was trying to, he was trying, he was working on A Few Good Men. And then he worked on, um, I think another screenplay, a screenplay that was never made, but <clears throat> called The Farnsworth Invention, I think. But anyway, he worked multiple jobs. And like, if you look at a lot of screenwriters, they always do that. And it makes sense because they're not at that level yet. They're trying to make income. It's just a dream. But then once they get that big break, then everything changes. So. 
Yeah. Exactly. Uh, baby steps, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I, I also uh, relate to you guys' um, concept of time management too, because it's like sometimes something, a big challenge for me as an aspiring screenwriter is learning how to multitask as well. Like back then when I was when I was still employed before the whole pandemic, I've, I also try to balance that while also make time with coming up with new fresh ideas for a film. So, and as well as house responsibilities when my parents were too busy, I am also trying to find my way in multitasking, like trying to prioritize one over the other and also make way for my passion as well. Happy to hear you guys are also doing well in that area as well. Yeah, it's really about, um, you know, just being patient, you know, if you have this dream and, you, and you're persistent, you can, you can attain that dream, you can get it, you just have to be persistent. I agree, yeah, it's definitely always making that next project, like always, like, for example, there's always going to be something, I know from my experience, there's always something that I, I've done, I felt really good about six months later I'm like oh you know I could have done that better but I always feel like you just have to keep making that next one like even though in retrospect you you will always sort of like think you know better in the moment I think it's always important just to just do your best at any at any possible time and just put your heart into whatever it is you're working on and I think it will always it'll always work out so as long as you um, you take that next step and you never stop uh, making the next project I find and, yeah, uh, sure. Yeah. So with the uh, with the current uh, situation, like in, in Houston, um, do you find do you find like there's a, a local community that has like I know Houston's a very it's a big city and it's I think there's been like a lot of big films there in the recent years. Do you find like um, there's a really good creative energy and creative creative community in your city that you can get behind? Yeah, I feel like there is. I, um, I joined a Facebook group called Houston Filmmakers, and it's vibrant. I mean, it's uh, it's not as big as, say, like Los Angeles or other places, but there's a lot of people, like, we always, and the posts that I read, it's always professional, like, you can always, people are always posting jobs and, like, I mean, uh, not jobs, projects or gigs that people can get on. Uh, I know a few local filmmakers myself, and uh, I recently worked on a short film with, with two of them uh, back in March. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, it's... Yeah, it's, it's vibrant. It's not as big. I don't think it's as big as other places, but... Because Houston is more of, like, um, an art scene. So Houston is more of, like, the scene of, like, artwork and, like, other visual arts, but... <clears throat> But yeah, in recent years, Texas has been a good place to, for for um, filming. I know uh, Alita Battle Angel was filmed in Austin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. And uh, Steven Spielberg's first film, The Sugarland Express, was filmed in in Sugarland or Houston area. So, but yeah, Houston has a and RoboCop was filmed in Dallas, the original RoboCop. Oh wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, Houston and Texas has, Texas in general has a great film history, but 
But in terms of in terms of Houston, yeah, we have a really good vibrant community. I would say it's small, but it's still vibrant. Yeah, yeah, because I I know Texas for being like I have a lot of favorite films that have come out of Texas either through like Richard Linklater. Um, I think Terrence Malick has made a couple of projects. At least The Tree of Life was definitely, and maybe others, but. Um, yeah, it seems like Austin, Austin has a really good, interesting scene, and also Houston, and um, yeah, a lot of a lot of really good dramas, and a lot of, like I think, um, yeah, Boyhood, um, that that was entirely Texas as well, great great film, um, and yeah, that was yeah that was Linklater, um, one of my favorite directors personally. So I'm really interested by different parts of the world, just how how the communities are, because um, Calgary is often sort of compared to as a Canadian sort of equivalent to maybe um, Denver or or Houston or, or Dallas, maybe like it's sort of this uh, bigger city, not really Vancouver or Toronto, and it's not like Los Angeles or New York, but it's sort of bet- between those two big cities, and there's a uh, something definitely unique about the, the film community here. So I think there's some parallels as far as um, both of our countries, how, how, it, how it works that way. But it's, it's really all about, I think, like you see so many great films come out of different parts of um, countries that aren't like the centers of the industry. So I think it's really inspiring just to find a community of like-minded people. Like you said, I think that's such a big part of it. It's just making movies wherever you are and, Using the, the the natural landscapes, the the interesting locations and the stories that you can, you can tell there, so that's really cool. Yes, I. I'm sorry, you were going to say something. Um, so yes, I I have to, I agree 100% with that statement as well that a film can be made almost anywhere because in most most of the films we watch budget is is lately irrelevant like there are so many great films that rely on very low budgets and yet they still manage to be a success like the expenses like the higher the budget is not equal to the measure of a film's success in my book Mm -hmm. yeah i feel like um budgets are are often arbitrary like i think studios are just like they have to put an X amount of money for this movie to have, you know, to be made. <clears throat> and a lot of times, a lot of classic movies, they go over budget, much of the studio's ire. <laughs> I mean, studio gets upset. But yeah, it's just an arbitrary number. And, but I understand why studios do that. You know, they gotta have a X amount of money because they have to, you know, they have to deal with investors and other people other people involved and um it's all about getting a return so that you can't it doesn't make sense economically if you if you budget a movie more than you made profit off of so they have to put a arbitrary limit to what you know they can put out that's why you have temples and things like that temple movies Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like John Carpenter, who is one of my favorite filmmakers, is a perfect example of this because the majority, with a few exceptions, the majority of his films are done with relatively low budgets, and he is not normally tied to some big studio like Hollywood to prove what an amazing filmmaker he is. 
Yeah, another good director too that was outside the studio system was Stanley Kubrick. Um, he he was able to finance a lot of his movies, I believe, and then he would he would still get the studios to distribute, but he would he would be the one that would do the financing. He moved to England because he wanted to get away from Hollywood. But yeah, sometimes you have directors that you know that can be self-sufficient. Exactly. Or, or Ari, really Ari Aster cool. too. Yeah. Oh, Ari Aster as well. Yes. Mm. Oh, yes. I didn't know that. It's more. He's an independent filmmaker as well. Like his films, particularly his first feature film, Hereditary, was done on a relatively low budget. And while yes, it was an A24 film, he actually distributed the idea to the studio, not the other way around. Oh, so he he actually distributed the movie. From what I hear, yes. Oh, wow, that's crazy. That's awesome. Yes. Yeah, Hereditary wasn't a bad film for a dictator debut. Oh, what were you going to say, Dan? Oh, no, no, sorry. I interrupted you. Don't worry. No, I'm done. Go ahead. Okay. Um, yeah, I was going to say, like, the independent independent film industry in Canada, that's really the... Um, that's really the only... Well, I mean, there is there are major films being produced here in Vancouver and Toronto, usually American films, but as far as doing it yourself as like the director of your own films, being the producer of your own films, the only real option is through just kind of finding an international audience as an independent filmmaker, like a lot of uh, Quebec filmmakers, French Canadian filmmakers have been able to do that quite well. Uh, Xavier Dolan and uh, Denis Villeneuve Mm -hmm. are really good examples that, yeah, it's just basically if they finance their own films, at least I know Xavier Dolan did through just, uh, he was, I think, an actor in his younger years and he was able to save up that way. But it's really, it's it's interesting. It's, it makes you realize um, that's always been the intimidating thing for me as, as a filmmaker. It's like, I, I um, up until recently, I didn't, I didn't work and like much at all like, until I was like 21, 20 years old. But um, yeah, it's kind of that, it's that inspiration, I guess, for continuing just working and knowing that uh, like a lot of your favorite filmmakers, they, they've had to kind of take on that, not that burden, but like that responsibility. So I think it's, it's inspiring, but it's definitely, it's, it's a challenge in today's landscape with all of the competition and all of the sort of uh, the expensive filmmaking. It's very expensive hobby or not a hobby but expensive career also when you turn it into a career it's also of course really expensive so but it's always i think really important to, to talk to people to figure that out because it is so it, that's that i find is the biggest obstacle as far as making whatever you want right but it's always possible every all of the possibilities are there to make it work it's just uh different for everyone yeah, you just have to be persistent yes. great yeah definitely Absolutely. and i guess i think i asked the last question nick but i might sorry did i i can't remember who asked the last question um <laughs> i believe that was uh you okay sorry no worries um so to be a in in the film industry there are many qualities that make up the strength of a filmmaker persistence as you both mentioned patience passion dedication so 
to you, Emmanuel, in your experience, what would you say are some of your biggest strengths as a screenwriter slash filmmaker? My biggest strengths is um, I'm, I'm quick to learn. I'm, yeah, I'm quick to learn new things, always learning, um, and I'm passionate, but also methodical and patient. And um, on the last few short films I worked on, I worked as a, mostly I worked as a, a grip and a production assistant. So I had to, um, you know, always look at what the DPU needed or what the director needed. So um, my first two films, I did a really good job. The last film I worked on, I kind of, <laughs> I guess because I didn't do it for so long, I kind of was slacking a little bit, but uh, but usually, um, yeah, I'm good at, I was good as a PA, a P production assistant. So I was always, you know, looking ahead at what the director or the director of photography needs. Like maybe you need to move this light here or, you know, make sure no one um, speaks on set or make sure the sound is going, wow. things like that. Um, so yeah, like that's helped me. It's really helpful, you know, being on the ground on a set and like, you know, watching it happen. You can gain experience from that and I've gained experience from that. Wow. So that was very, very nice. From what you told us about your, say, a production uh, designer, uh, assistant, what was it? Production assistant. Right. Thank you. Um, production assistant. So would, it, would you say it has also taught you about the qualities of leadership? Yeah, like I worked on projects where the director was very much in control um, and they knew what they were doing. So that was helpful. Um, I worked on four short films now and I've had, they've all been good experiences. Um, the, yeah, I think, I think the second short film, it was with the same guy and he was my teacher at one of my teachers at HGC and it was a full day shoot and it's like, you know, a full day shoot, you know, you know, people could get stressed out and things like that. Uh, but he knew what he wanted to do. Him and the DP that he got, director of photography, he knew exactly what they wanted to get. So that was pretty cool. Um, so yeah, so on all, on all those short films I worked on, it, it was mostly smooth. It was a smooth um, production yeah, for the most part. Nice, man. They were very lucky to have you, I see. Yeah, the directors knew what they were doing, the ones that I was with. That's really cool. And would you say that uh, there's any particular like themes, uh, motifs, sim symbolism in your film, or like common, uh, just common story, sort of like connections between your films, your work? Like, what 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 are some of the biggest sort of like themes of your films or your writing? Oh, so in the short films, it was mainly all the main characters were like younger people so like my age so I guess millennials what millennials go through mm -hmm. one was dealing about you know uh, the first film short film I worked on was dealing about like you know uh, university uh, a student a female student was raped and the main the main dilemma is the main character having to report it because he's friends with the guy that did it the second film was more like a, 
post-apocalyptic, post-dystopian um, society where everything was controlled, and these young, these young characters were kind of like on the on the margins. And then the third one was, um, third one was these two guys living in a house. I live in an apartment, and they're both younger guys, and one guy just starts going crazy. It's kind of like the lighthouse a little bit. One guy just goes a little crazy. And there's a plot twist at the end. Um, like, you know, this guy was murdering people, and, but there's a plot twist that, that why he was doing that, what caused that. And then the last film I did was um, a comedy. It was a comedy. It was about, like, it was a parody. It was a parody of uh, Paranormal Activity. So it was a parody of that. So it was just a really, we had some really funny stuff uh, in the script and in that film. In terms of my writing, um, I like dealing with characters that are that are isolated or characters that are, at least in the first two original scripts I wrote, the characters were people that were on the outside, like on the outside looking in. And and the first script, he uses that to his advantage because it's a spy thriller and he's trying to investigate the murder of his mentor. He's trying to find a, a, a mole or somebody that's a traitor. In the second film I wrote, a crime thriller, it was it was because it was a racial thing. It was because he was black, and um, and I wanted to show the case his uh, his frustration at that. And he goes down a villainous path, like he becomes a criminal. But along the way, you understand why he he went that route. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like with Breaking Bad, how Walter Wright felt he wasn't given any attention or anything like that. It's kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, those are two, two original scripts I wrote. And then uh, the TV show that I wrote called uh, Chronicles is about misfits. It's about these people, these people that come together to meet each other, and they're all misfits. Like, they're all on the outside, too. Even though they're having normal jobs and things like that, they all... They all have, uh, they all feel like they're on the outside because you find out that they're gods from mythology and they've had to live a, a secret life. So, so yeah, it's that would be like the common theme. I like characters that are kind of on the margins. Hmm, that's really cool. <laughs> and would you say there's like any specific genre that you haven't worked in yet that you've always wanted to go in, uh, sort of like? sometime in your career that's you know like you'll definitely get to it but maybe you're waiting for it is there anything like that yeah i want to say comedy and and um yeah comedy and sci-fi like i've the chronicles is sci-fi but it's not it's not purely sci-fi it's also a little bit fantasy but i have a project for a sci-fi i have an idea for a sci-fi um project but i want to wait until I uh, you know, more, do more research and gain more experience before I tackle it. So I would say comedy and sci-fi. Nice, man. It's very... It, adds, it also addresses another strength of yours, your versatility. Yeah, I like dealing with different genres. Like, 
I've always loved spy movies, so that's why, especially James Bond movies. And, uh, and I'm, re- I'm a big fan of Homeland. Yes. TV show Homeland. And Nick is as well. Awesome. Nick is too. Love it. <laughs> so uh, I, I was very inspired by, um, by that. And I also like the TV show Alias with Jennifer Garner. And yeah, and like I said earlier, I wanted to be in the CIA before I changed my mind. But uh, I did research on it. And that's why how I wrote my first script, The uh, Circuit, which is a spy thriller. And um, and the second one was uh, uh, a crime thriller called Kingdom, but I changed it to Racket. It's called Racket now, so it was a crime thriller. I've always loved crime movies. Nice, man. But, um, but yeah, comedy and sci-fi are like two genres I want to dive into. Because to me, they're, they're hardest. They're hardest to me because comedy depends so much on the jokes being funny and the punchlines. And sci-fi is, is super hard, I think, because the world building, you have to set up the rules and things like that, and you can't break them. And you have to, and, and to have good sci-fi is to also have good social commentary too. I'd agree on that one too, yeah. Like, yeah, so I think that's why those two are the hardest for me. But I do plan to dabble into them. I'm sure you can pull off, pull it off for sure. Like, then, like Denis Villeneuve, he, in his his earlier films were more grounded in reality and down to earth. And when he when he proved to be a master at sci-fi with both Arrival and Blade Runner 2049, like nobody would think that Denis Villeneuve could succeed in the sci-fi genre but he did he revolutionized it so if that can happen to him I'm sure the same will apply to you as well yeah yeah I mean Denis Villeneuve he's a big sci-fi fan so I think he brought it with him he brought it with with the passion his passion for it and he made sure he had good writers and the material was good I mean Arrival, Blade Runner, and now Doom that's coming up. So, yeah, he's he's a big fan of sci-fi. Exactly. And I'm excited for his... Um, I know Dane was talking about Cleopatra, right? In the latest episode? Yeah, that's right. And, and the, the, um, in, in your Dane Villanueva episode? So, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in what he does with Cleopatra. Even though... Patty Jenkins wants to do a Cleopatra movie too. So we have to see which one is made first. <laughs> right. That's right. That's often happen. Like, so, so there's always like two movies that are very similar that come out the same year. There's a few examples like that in the last like few decades. It's always interesting. One is always usually like probably a bit better than the other one, or sometimes they're both pretty good. So yeah, I'm excited to see what happens with those two films. But I, I definitely have confidence in Denny Villeneuve because yeah. he's he's just been so good. Like everything he's done has been good. So yeah, that's going to be really an interesting production. Agreed. Yes. Yeah, it's really yeah. great to experiment a lot in cinema. Like it's also it's good to it's good to stay with what you're strong with whatever genre you find fits you the most. But at the same time, it's also great to try new things instead of sticking to one. And I think Denis Villeneuve has shown that immensely and succeeded. Yeah, he has. He has. He's done multiple genres too. He's done a crime film. I think he, he 
crime film, mystery film, and now sci-fi. So I still need to watch the earlier stuff, but I hear good stuff about it. Mm-hmm. And the same I would apply to Mr. Tarantino as well. He's produced spaghetti westerns, war films, crime dramas, and in a way samurai films, if you can kill Bill, volumes one and two is one. Mm-hmm. Definitely. If, if you consider what? Kill Bill volumes one and two. Oh yeah, that's true. That's more of a martial arts film though, but yeah. Yeah, because he, he took a lot from martial arts films. But yeah, Tarantino. I like directors that do that. And Nolan does it too. Nolan mm-hmm. changes genres too. Exactly. It's, it's amazing. It's impressive, really, with all of them. And uh, moving on to the uh, next question. Um, you something i keep hearing from you emmanuel and which i admire is that you tend you have a lot of appreciation for while you love all films in general you have more appreciation towards the classical side of films would you care to add more on that on you leaning more to the classical side and the modern side yeah it's just it's more originality and more um more there's more I just like the craftsmanship of those recent those bygone era but that bygone era it's just you look at like each film that came out of golden age of Hollywood was just so amazing like they followed yeah they had a formula they had a formula they followed it's kind of similar to Marvel's Cinematic Universe but like it's just something about it that appeals to me like they're so the plots are very simplistic. The plots are very, um, the plots are very simplistic, and they're very character-based. And and like, there's no, and there's no special effects spectacle or anything like mm. that. It's just character drama. And you see, like, it's like what Nolan refers to in his movies, like the snowball effect, where like you have these dramas. They build up, there's so much suspense, there's so much setup, and then they build up to a conclusion, which I guess all films do, but in the golden age of Hollywood, it's just so done meticulously. Like, there's just so many examples of where they do it so well. I mean, Hitchcock is a good example, but also you have guys like Billy Wilder, who directed Sunset Boulevard and, um, and Double Indemnity. I mean, those two movies are just classics because they still hold up in terms of the craftsmanship and the storytelling and um movies like casablanca you know and it's just the plots are so simple easy to follow um yeah it's just unless of course if you're looking if you are watching more film noir or hard-boiled movies then yeah the plot will be complex like maltese falcon but even the Maltese Falcon had a very, I mean, you had Humphrey Bogart, who's very charismatic. You follow him as a character. And, but if you pay attention, you know what's happening. It's not like, you know, you get, it's not easy to get lost if you're watching it, if you're watching it, paying attention. Exactly. Whereas I feel like nowadays, movies that come out of Hollywood now are, the plot, there's so much emphasis on plot so much emphasis on like 
on spectacle and and there's no originality and it's like that's just a shame you know it's you have very few directors that are the only one i can think of off the top of my head is nolan like he's done like two or three original ideas yeah his this stuff is complex but i think he does that so he can be um it can involve the audience intellectually. Like he doesn't, I don't think he's pandering to the audience. No. He just wants to involve the audience in his, in his own thinking process and how he thinks about movies and how he thinks they could be more than entertainment. They could be like intellectual exercises too. Um, Absolutely. But yeah, it's just a disconnect between movies that come out today and the movie that came out in the old days is that they had a tried and true formula. They had these A-list actors. They had great writers. I mean, a lot of the writers in the, in the um, golden age were playwrights or, or newspaper writers or journalists. And so they brought their experiences. And that's why you have the dialogue. It's very, the dialogue is almost musical. It's almost so well done in old, in, in old movies. Agreed. Whereas yes. now... You really have to look for um, good writers like Aaron Sorkin. Uh, no one is good at it too, but a lot of movies now are just—they're just not—they're just not, not up at the caliber of like older movies, in my opinion. I have to agree with you on that one as well. You see, since this whole year, I have been really watching a lot of old movies and not to diss on the modern or 2010 films. That decade was a great decade for film, for sure. But yes, the thing is that the classical f films, they have like a lot of heart It's not just, you could see the passion that they really put into this work. Nowadays, yes. it's more just money, money, money. It's like today, the success of a film is measured in the box office success, which is some, sometimes it's not exactly true. Like the MCU films are great, of course. The, the box office success are good. But just because a film is financially successful does not guarantee or mean that it's, you know, great there are so many like lackluster or bad movies out there that well are bad but they and still do good at the box office like we are hollywood is like i mentioned to you emmanuel hollywood is really sometimes out of touch with us with their audience yeah it seems like they make more bad movies now than they did back in those days back in the golden age i mean yeah it's also a different generation of filmmakers too So for better or for worse, you know, you have a lot of directors that are inspired by them, but also want to do their own thing. But, you know, I can, I really have to, to me anyway, I really have to look deep to find good directors nowadays that I want to stay behind. Um, the, I think the mainstream directors, I don't really care for that much, like, J.J. Abrams or um, uh, who's another mainstream director? Uh, he's the one that tops off the top of my head. Um, uh, Michael, Michael Bay. Bay. Yeah. yeah, Michael Bay. I don't really care for those guys. But every now and then you have a, a sparkle. You have like an independent person like um, like Robert Eggers, who I adore. Like 
I, I can't wait to see his next film. That guy, he's he understands old films. He understands. He's a student of film, and like anything he does, I think is gonna be good. Robert Eggers. Agreed. Yes. Uh, Jordan Peele too. Jordan Peele's good. Ari Aster. Ari Aster's good. Well, I knew you were gonna say Ari Aster, but I wanted to wait until. <laughs> I didn't want to say him yet, but yes, Ari Aster. Um, but yeah, you just have to look like. And I feel like in the old days you didn't have to look deep to find great directors. You had so many, but now you have to be like, okay, it's like you have to shift through the crap. You know, you have to, <laughs> you have to shift through. Okay, not this, not that. Oh, okay, this one, this one. <laughs> right. You know, it just seems like it's a different dynamic now. Right. Just it's just that sometimes it irks me when I sometimes I someone watches this an old film and says nah I don't want to watch it because it's too old but they're just missing the point just oh because goodness. something is old doesn't mean it's you know obsolete or out of date and also remember the, back in those times you know when movies were all just original ideas and not all sequels prequels spin-offs and remakes and when trailers yeah. didn't give away the whole damn movie yeah <laughs> come on I, mean, I haven't watched it but I read about it Orson Welles did a, an amazing trailer for Citizen Kane he was teasing it he was like he showed behind the scenes footage and he did a narration and it brought up he, he fostered excitement for the movie because you know he didn't explain what the movie was about he just showed like it, he was playing around with the, with the public and like and that drum up interest in the movie exactly I like Yeah, that's not a lot of directors do that nowadays. Yeah, the studios control the trailers now. Or so a good, a good example is um, the Batman v Superman trailer. Oh God! How, yeah, they showed everything. How like Zack Snyder had no control because he couldn't control that. No, because WB was worried about it, so they had to showcase all the amazing stuff they saw in the movie even though they spoiled it. I know. God, just know. And also, um, back then, using a classical example, Ridley Scott's Alien, for example, let's just look up the trailer. It's just one minute long, and in all those shots in the trailer, we don't even see the alien, just the main characters reacting to stuff, and it still makes you want to watch it. Yeah, like Ridley Scott, he, he knows how to... How to get people to excited? How to get people into the theaters? That's another skill too that directors have can have. Yeah. But yeah, I prefer I prefer older films because there's a reason they're still talked about. You know, like in, in film fan circles and cinephile circles. Mm -hmm. You know, like oh, the Citizen Kane is, is awesome because of this, this, and that. Exactly. Whereas I feel like nowadays, you, it's really hard to find movies that are that are that are really classic i feel like there's a lot of mediocre films there's a lot more mediocre films than great films out there i think so and that's not to say that they're terrible it's just i don't know i just feel like filmmaking was there was so much more craftsmanship in those days and there still is now but like it's just a different it was a different dynamic it's more rare days. more rare let's say yeah Yeah, going back to what you said, Nick, about people that uh, kind of 
reject watching older films. It's, I've noticed that also what's kind of even worse is when people are rejecting movies that are like, for example, from 10, 15 years ago, like, they, like there's like people have like a shorter expiry date today for films, like in their minds, like how they, how they view these films. Like you, some people treat like a five-year-old film as something old now. And it's just like, really? That's that to me, that's, to me, anything like within 20 years, that's pretty recent. Like that's that's still a modern film in my opinion. But it's, it's weird how this the perspective's changing. But yeah, I like I read a statistic or a study that a lot of our generation millennials, especially the younger ones, they prefer more recent movies than older ones. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's kind of it's, just like oh sorry. sorry. I think it's just a generational thing. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of just like that sort of infinite new content to reference uh, an Arcade Fire album, their their album, uh, one of their songs, Infinite Content. But I think it's a pretty it's a pretty interesting uh, point. It's like we we do have infinite content right now, and as far as music, film, like the next thing that you can watch is always there. It's not, you're never waiting for something new. So I think it's just that sort of. Uh, that spoiled nature of people in 2020 we we don't we we yeah we get bored with things quite easily and i think that's a really that's a tragedy because there's so many good things if you're willing to look for them if you're willing to go out of your comfort zone and i mean if, if it wasn't for like i guess i guess that's the nature that's the the great thing about film studies and film classes is they 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 don't they don't just show you what you want they actually show you what you've never seen before but you end up loving so that's just that exploration and that uh uh, discovery process is so important i think in whatever you're interested in i think you need to like continue to to be a student continue to research continue to watch new things always always that's so important no, I agree. I agree. Agree. Luckily, the three of us, we have a few people, um, including the three of us, who actually appreciate and see the beauty in these classical films. A true classic, no matter how old it can be, 1940, 1920, even the 1800s, it will never go out of style. Yeah, I don't think it will. I think film has a long history. And I'm still learning about movies that I've never heard about. I just recently got into more Korean films, and they have a great um, uh, film, film, film culture too. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I love watching foreign films. It's just a breath of fresh air because, like, you're so used to watching American movies or or, or movies where you're from, and then you um, you notice like other potential other possibilities from other films yeah so it's it's really nice exactly yeah. yeah i've been really this quarantine i've been getting into a lot of foreign films mostly courtesy of dane here with films such as parasite a girl walks home alone at night and roma it's fantastic yeah. really yeah I yeah those are, those are great movies oh. I agree with you guys, but foreign films, definitely, I, I've always been interested in it, even when you'll see my list, I don't know if we're naming 10 or 5 films today, but... 10, we have, but before we, we have time for just one more question yeah. later, before we yeah. get to the list, but go on, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 
For me, it was um, my parents were really into foreign films. I think it's because uh, both of them are really they're interested in other cultures. So it's uh, kind of what led to me wanting to travel in the first place was was I think in a, in a large part it's not just well also knowing people from other parts of the world having friends but then it was also movies on top of that it's just um, you're you're seeing a culture that's not your own and it becomes so interesting because there's there's parallels but then there's there's differences in the culture differences in the language but there's that universe universality to every um, like human story like we can all relate to it but it's just in a different context and setting so I think that is really interesting different histories different um, cultural cultural norms and different sort of uh, perspectives so it's 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 like you're getting you're, you're it's like you're basically able to see yeah a new idea a new film a new story but also uh, yeah like you said an entirely different experience beyond that so it's I think foreign films you could literally watch thousands and never run out because it's just like there's so many good films around the world so that's the amazing part about it yeah mm. I agree yes yeah and now it's time to get to the moment we've all been waiting for the ranking our top 10 favorite films of all time so we'll be switching so emmanuel you start with your 10 then dane starts with his 10th 9th and 8th and so forth so let's start with you emmanuel number 10 all right this is a list i've known you, you see my list in um the film the film buffs group on facebook but yeah um this is this is a list that um a few months ago i made and i'm happy with it so number 10 would be blade runner yes. directed by willie scott Wow. Uh, I read the book. It was based on, I'm a huge sci-fi fan. Even Philip K. Dick, before he died, gave his blessing. Uh, he loved he loved what they were doing with, the, with his book and the movie. Um, it was just great, um, great storytelling, great world building. It talked about what it means to be human. Uh, Harrison Ford, even though Harrison Ford and Willie Scott had uh had some troubles on set it was still um yeah it was still they still made a great film uh, i adore that movie i remember watching it after i left my first college in 2013 and i came back and i watched it and i just fell in love with it yeah so my number 10 is blade runner excellent choice man i watched this film a few many weeks ago and i loved it one of the best sci-fi films out there it is. It really is. Yeah, that was also one of the most influential films for me in, in high school film class. Uh, it quickly became, I think, one of my favorite sci-fi's of all time. And uh, yeah, it's it's a perfect film. Interesting enough, did you guys know this? I didn't know this that in one of the versions of Blade Runner, the ending scene, they used uh, extra footage from The Shining. Did you guys know about this? Yeah, yeah. Um, I heard of it. Yes. Like he, uh, really, Scott got Stanley Kubrick to help out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I didn't believe it until I saw it, and I was like, "That is really interesting." I love both movies, and that they're actually kind of connected in that way. Unbelievable. Yeah. Really cool. So number nine would be Seven Samurai, directed mm. by Akira Kurosawa, nineteen fifty-four. 
and it was it's a very influential film but i just love kurosawa's his composition and filmmaking and how he does his shots it's like paintings it's like he he really encapsulates the action the way he directs the action was just amazing during the production he, he had like three cameras one to catch action that you know the two cameras were just for you know to capture the actors and then the third was like for capturing the action and he would draw like diagrams to choreograph the filmmaking it's just so well done i mean yeah it's really one of the best movies i've ever seen seven samurai I it's three it. hours long but it's worth it i mean it's it's like watching a, a japanese epic yeah it's it's a great film it's a samurai film but it's really good i'll watch it tonight i got it recorded on dvr awesome check it out like just just get three hours that, to yourself and just watch it <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome very nice oh we're gonna say that oh i was gonna say very nice choice i i've heard about this but i haven't i haven't seen it yet but three and a half hours but it's 100 around tomatoes that's That's pretty good. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's really good. Seven Samurai. And fun fact, um, I first I first heard of Seven Samurai, the film's existence in your Justice League script, Emmanuel. Believe it or not. Oh wow. Yeah, that's where I took. That's where I took. Yeah, I said I took inspiration from that because it's the same kind of story. You have these seven people that are recruited to face off against bad guys, and Justice League is like the same thing. I even put like uh, there were Seven Samurai was on the TV when when the Green Lantern was flipping through the channel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice, nice. So nod. I put that little reference in there. Nice reference, really good, clever, yeah. very witty. Yeah, it was just a reference, a homage. And uh, yeah, number eight is Eight and a Half, but directed mm-hmm. by Federico Fellini, 1963. Mm-hmm. And I love that film because. Is a comedy drama, and some parts are just so funny. Like, uh, but it's about a director. He has a writer's block or director's block. He doesn't know what to make his movie about, and so he faces he faces um, these stressful circumstances from the press, people that want to know what movie he's making, when he's going to start filming. His estranged wife comes, and she doesn't want to be there, but he he wants. I think he wanted her to be there. You know, the, so they could reconcile, and she doesn't. She sees right through him, and she's like, "You're just a. Uh, I don't know why I'm with you." <laughs> it's just a great. It's just a great um, uh, great film. And the wife was played by the amazing French actress Anouk Amy, who was a great, great um, great actress. And uh, so yeah, it's just the film was about him, the creative process, how he goes into these imaginary situations and that's kind of escapism from his responsibility as a director but um but yeah it's just very funny and very whimsical and um the way the way it was shot too was amazing it shot in black and white so it was well done i love that movie Uh, have you guys heard of eight and a half i haven't until you mentioned it a few weeks ago and another film i'll watch this week also recorded on my dvr you found all that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> i've heard about it i haven't seen it i, I definitely know about uh, uh federico fellini he's 
very big name from Italy. I know I, I think, yeah, I might have seen another one of his films in film class, but I know that he is, yeah, he's one of the greats. So that's one that I need to watch, absolutely. Yeah, I loved it. And number seven is Casablanca. Yes. Michael Curtis. Nice. Michael Curtis. Uh, I think it came out in 1940, 1948, I'm not sure. Uh, 1942, yes. 1942, okay. Yeah, I just love the movie. Like, I remember watching this, um, CNN had this documentary about movies, and Paul Thomas Anderson was on it, and he said, like, mm. Casablanca, you can find any genre you like in that movie. It has your war film, it has your romantic movie. Uh, it's just, and I agree with him. I feel like, it's a film that's just it's a film for everybody like a lot of people could get out of it because it was a film about the um about america's place in world war ii and that's represented by uh humphrey bogart's character rick and how he doesn't want to get involved but then like he meets his great berkman and she involves him in you know the war effort and things like that and it's a very idealistic movie. It is. I think that's why it's so. I like it a lot. It's very idealistic. It shows what kid. the best we can do as human beings. Yes. And yeah, I just loved it. It was. It was a great. Uh, it's a great film. Here's looking yeah. at you, kid. Yep. Yeah, it's really. It shows how love is is literally at the heart of every sort of major decision we make, and how that's sort of like the guiding force in our lives. Is like. Is like finding or being with the person that you love. So I think that's yeah, it's a beautiful film for for that reason. It is yes. I watched it yesterday, and it is so far the best forties film I've seen. It's beautifully shot, even more than eighty years later. It and the it's very quotable as well. Very very idealistic film, I'd say, which is perfect for these times. Yeah, my favorite scene is when Rick is sitting by himself. And he's thinking about uh, his ex-girlfriend and he's like drinking and it's like the way they shot that scene was just yes. it really tells you his mindset and like it sets the tone too exactly it's just a great scene exactly showing uh, it sh show don't tell that's another great staple from the old movies that the new ones really don't have yeah number six is m m directed by fritz lang 1931 and that's I chose that because when I watched it, it was just the cinematic, the cinematography was just amazing. Like, I mean, and the storytelling too was just so, so it was dark, but it was so um, investing. Like, I was invested in the story. It's a story about um, this child murderer in Germany, and people are trying to find him. And like, it gets so bad that even criminals in the underworld. Are trying to capture him. <laughs> Even bad guys are trying to find this guy. Wow. And so you really seeing like it's a social commentary on Germany at the time. Because Robert Robert Ebert, the film critic, he said that what he got from it was that Fritz Lang was very upset that Germany was, you know, overrun by Nazi Germany was overrun by the Nazis. And so the film was a huge it's it's a biting critique of people in Germany. Like, the film posits that 
parents weren't doing their job and protecting their children. It's a very harsh critique. And, um, but yeah, it's well shot, it's well made. A lot of, it's like a film noir precursor. I mean, uh, it's a German expressionist film. So there's a lot of um, jagged edges and like unusual camera angles. And and, um, yeah, it's just a well-made film. And with the harsh social commentary. See, 1931, you mentioned? Yeah, 1931. Mm, I got to see this film as well. Because letter M, that's what, well, this is kind of a spoiler, but that's how they were able to track the murderer. Because he he would always whistle the song. I forgot the name of it. But so this one woman, she heard, heard him saying it. And she painted, she, she had a chalk. And she put the letter M on his back. So when he would walk around, people would see the letter M. Mm. And they would know he's the murderer. And that's how the criminals were able to find him. And <laughs> they gave him a kangaroo court, man. They, they were not messing. They were not playing around. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a story about Germany. Germany's place in the world and how it, the society at that time. And it's just a well-made film. Mm. Excellent choice. That's awesome. That's good. Good timing that you mentioned that because I watched, I rewatched for a second time, um, the Cabinet of Doctor uh, Caligari. Uh, yeah, two, and I, I love that film too. Great film about, and I had to write a paper on it about uh, Germany at that time and how it was kind of predictive of the rise of uh, fascism mm. and the prelude to World War Two. And I, I had no idea before I kind of researched it that yeah, it actually it is clearly about it. So I. I think a lot of films from that time from and from Germany, a lot of filmmakers were really criticizing the way that the country was heading. So it's really, uh, really scary though, like to watch it and just reflect on that. Yeah, like, wow. it's, even the production, like the Nazis, I think they tried to stop the production of the movie, but then they they let, they allowed Fritz Lang to create it. But yeah, it was, he was critiquing this country. He didn't like, he did not like, I'm convinced he didn't like the direction they were headed. <laughs> and number five is uh, Stalker, directed by Andrei Tarkovsky. Wow. Oh, I've heard of him, um, Tarkovsky. That's he's a great Russian filmmaker. Like he's a lot of people look to him as like the founder of slow cinema, where like he has these long takes that kind of immerse you in the world. But even then, even if you just think it's just a long take. He's still like there's still a story being told with how he takes his shots, oh, and so Stalker is about it's a like a post-apocalyptic future in Russia where this guy he he's a, he's a guide for these people that go to this place called the Zone, and the Zone is where you know you can have your wishes come true, but the film is, is like a it's a philosophical dilemma because. The one person that it brings with is like a, a writer, I think. And they talk about one guy that went crazy when he went inside the, the zone and he got what he wanted and he just lost his mind. So it's it's really a movie about be careful what you wish for. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's very philosophically uh, driven in terms of the dialogue. They have a lot of philosophical debates with the characters and the, the characters have. And it's well shot and like it's 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 really cool because some of the some of the scenes are shot in sepia tone and then the others are shot in like color tone 
to differentiate. You know, like whenever they enter the whenever they enter the zone, I think, or they're about to enter the zone, it's sepia. But then when they're there, it turns color. And you, so that's pretty cool. And uh, you mentioned it also did long continuous takes. Yeah, yeah, that's that's Tarkovsky's. Um, that's his um, his mo. Wow. That's what he likes to do. Wow. But he does that for a reason. It's amazing. Like the the long continuous take is probably my favorite camera movement in anything in film, TV. I've always wanted to learn how to do that shot unbroken and continuous. Oh, he does a great job with it. Um, yeah, at first it can be drawing, but you could, because you're not used to it. But I think as you watch more of his films, I've watched three of his films. And I think you get used to it if, if, because it's part of his storytelling. Like there's a reason he's, he does that, and it def, and it makes him very unique in his style. Yeah. Number four is Canal, directed by Andrzej Wajda, 1956. Wow. And it's a war film. It's a war film, a Polish war film. And. Um, yeah, it's it's a dark movie because these these people in the Polish resistance and the Polish army, they were fighting the Nazis, but it gets so bad that they have to go underground into these sewers, and it it they all just break down like it just gets because it's like a maze of sewers and they don't know where they're going, so one person goes crazy and like they start losing hope that they can actually get out and a, a, a lot of them die in the end hmm. a lot of them die it's, it's kind of depressing but it's uh it just shows you the harshness of war and how but it shows you like um it's part of the polish film school so the polish film school was a movement where they showed you the um it was influenced by italian neorealism in the sense that it showed you the realistic uh, aspects of life in Poland and, and it was yeah it was just a very um, I want to say nihilistic but very uh, dark side of Poland at that time so yeah it was just really well done made well done movie 1956 yeah so many years after World War II wow see yeah I see it's the guy who wrote it, he actually served in the resistance army. Oh, wow. So it was, he was writing from experience. Wow. It's amazing. It's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, speaking of which, I saw, this is a much newer film, but the um, film Ida is a Polish film from, I think, 2017, 2018. Um, I, think, I think that film, what am I trying to say? Essentially, what I'm trying to say is like the. I think that is also that is also obviously from the Polish perspective of the war, and it's sort of like after after the war, and it's done. That's one I recommend to you uh, to check out Emmanuel if you haven't seen it because it's it's it, it looks like a classic film like from that time from the 50s, but it's uh, modern. But it's wow. So knowing that, I need to I need to see this film as well because I loved Ida and I think. Um, it's a story that needs to be told and we need to remember it. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to check it out. I'm going to check it out. Same here. Same here. So, so number three is another film by Tarkovsky, uh, Mirror. 
1975. It's like an avant-garde type movie. It, it has non-linear narrative, but it's about um, a guy, a guy who's in his 40s. I think he's about a... He, no, I think he's older than that. He's in the, on his deathbed or something. And he reminisces about his childhood. And it's really about Russia. It's really about the Russia's place in the world. And um, it's really... And like, he had the same, he had a, Tarkovsky had the same actress play both the mother and the grandmother. So Margarita Tarakova. And so I think he was trying to show how like different generations go to the same trauma. Cause it was around the time, like it has three timelines. So one is 1930s, one is during wartime, World War II, and then this third one is post-war. And you're seeing all these aspects of the main character's life from his father's perspective and then also his perspective too and the mother's perspective too. So it's, I guess the mirror is kind of like a sense of, you know, looking ourselves in the mirror and what we've gone through in our lives. And you want this? it's a very, very artistic movie. It's very, very artistic. I, I like it a lot. Mm. Yeah. You said that was Tarkovsky's ball. Yeah, mirror. Yeah. 1975. I, yeah, I have a really close friend. He's he's really into Tarkovsky, so I'm I'm I recognize these titles, but I need to see I need to see his his uh, I almost said discography, filmography. I need to dive into it because he looks like one of the most just like poetic filmmakers I think of all time. Yeah, like I think he approached the movie as like a poem mm-hmm. because he has some uh, Goskino, the Russian film in studio. They didn't allow him to make it for the longest. And at some point they did. But it was really, um, he based it off a poem by his father, or at least the idea from his father. And it's just a very, it's a very uh, personal movie. It's really Tarkovsky talking about his childhood, if you think about it. Wow. Uh, it's a very touching movie. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And number two is, number two is Rashomon. Directed by Akira Kurosawa, 1950. Mm. And I love that movie. I love it. I read the short story it was based on In a Grove. It's called In a Grove. And um, the film is, is very faithful to it. But um, yeah, Rashomon, it's, it deals with, again, non-leader, not non, yeah, kind of non-leader storyline where you have like these different perspectives of what happened. So this woman gets raped by this criminal but the woman has a different account of what happened from the criminal's account. And then uh, an older guy, a bandit, not a bandit, a, a woodkeeper or something. He, he was an old guy that saw it and he has a different account of what happened. So you have all these competing accounts of what happened. And so you're not really sure who's telling the truth and who's lying. And so it kind of puts an eye on eyewitness testimony and things like that. And, and like even the actors when they were filming the film they wanted Kurosawa to tell them what the truth was but he said no like <laughs> just just it's, it's an expression of of um the idea is just, the idea he wanted to put forward was how truth can be subjective and uh from our viewpoints and uh it's really a film about Japan's place in the world too it came out um 1950s and and the way they shot it was amazing. It's black and white, and 
the way they captured the sunlight and you know the the, the light tells the story how the lighting is done it's just so well done um so yeah Rashomon is that's that's number two for me wow we have to watch that as well same here and number one, you guessed the Dane. I mean, uh, Nick. Citizen Kane, number one. Nice. Directed by Orson Welles, 1941. Nice. Impressive. Um, it's just a great film. It's so influential. Black and white as well. Uh, it's really an American, quintessentially an American story about this guy that had the dream, the American dream, but he was just so miserable and lonely at the top. And... It's a film about, um, yeah, America's place in the world a little bit, but also how you have these different perspectives of who this guy was, but you never get a clear picture of who he was. He's like a larger-than-life character. As more people talk about him, it's like he has a life of his own. Yes. But, um, but yeah, the cinematography, the production design, the music, it was just everything Orson Welles did was innovative, even down to the makeup. Um, yeah, it's just it's my favorite of all time. Excellent, excellent choice, Emmanuel. Two things. First off, I'm. It's very impressive that the majority of your the films on your list all have perfect 100% ratings, and I enjoy like, watching them. Like. Nice. And it's like those are movies I could rewatch. Like oh, those yeah. are movies I could rewatch. Like all of these, all the movies I listed, I could rewatch. Oh wow! So that was important to me too. And the other, that's. Does, does it shock you when I say I have seen only three out of ten of these films? Yes. Oh man, you. I think you'll you'll like the movies when you watch the other seven. You'll you'll see where like why you see why I'm kind of into classical older directors and things like that but yeah I mean there are classics nowadays too in 2000s but I feel like those 10 are like they're like they're all masterpieces in my opinion nice wow really excellent choices from what I looked up man this this is I feel like this list is one a film scholar would definitely approve of yeah I did I, I, I looked at I looked at the ratings and like and then I just made my own. I looked at what the p other people said their best movies are, but I just made my own. Like Canal, like a lot of Canal isn't really talked about, but I just loved it. I, it was so different from other war movies I've seen, and it just was really good. Like it had a great story. Yeah, it's a dark story, but it really shows the horrors of war. Like without being without being bloody or without being gory. Good. It's great to hear. So it doesn't glorify it. Bonus point. Nice. Really good selections, man. Really well done. Thanks. And wow. now we shine the light on to Big D. Your turn, Dane. I'd love. I've been waiting to hear your list. Let's begin. So I might have to start off with a few honorable mentions because I feel like I don't know. I, it's just so close. Like between these following films in 10th place like it was super close so I just want to mention a few films um, Embrace of the Serpent the Ciro Guerra film from 20, uh, 26 15, 26, I don't know the exact year but it's a Colombian film 
I feel like Sierra Guerra is like the like Colombia's Robert Akers almost. He um, this film, if you haven't seen it, it's it's a stunning. Just it's a very quiet film. It's, it's, there's a lot of dialogue, but it's mostly like a very minimal cast. But it's, it tells such a, a like a a long timeline and really explains the the trouble with, with uh, colonialism and the exploitation of the Amazon. And it's, yeah, it's one of the best films I've seen in my life, and it's also a favorite of mine. I'd have to also say 2001 A Space Odyssey uh, nearly made the list, but I can't believe it didn't. I mean, it's so good, but it's not just almost made into it, made into the top ten. But also Psycho. Um, oh, great. That's a great film. Yeah, so, so close. Also, uh, Drive as well is sort of uh, modern, I think, will be a, a future classic that people look back on even oh, yeah. even with more love than today but i think it'll be uh, a future classic uh and then films like uh do the right thing uh spike lee i think that's one of his best films lord yes, of the rings yeah lord of the rings uh what any any one of those three films honestly any one of the three lord of the rings i think could be in the top 10 um singing in the rain but I'll need to calm down with honorable mentions because there's so many other ones. But yeah, there are. <laughs> uh, so for number ten, I'd have to go with uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Guillermo uh, awesome. del Toro. Mm. Uh, that's a masterpiece by Del Toro. That's one of his best films. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's one of the most beautiful films in terms of visuals, in terms of your connection to the, the characters, and just the heartbreak and the frustration. Like I, I've. You, you see you see absolute evil you see absolute like um, goodness and you see when those two sides are in conflict with each other and how you know it's not I don't want to spoil it for anyone that has to see it but it's not the most it's not the perfect ending but it does sort of show you that we can kind of transcend evil by imagining a better world and um, I think like we were talking about idealism I think this is a film that is is very much it honors that sort of childlike idealism of the world and how it can make our world a better place. So I think one of the most stunning films I've ever seen in my life. So yeah, it was. I'm a big fantasy fan, and like Del Toro, he pulled a lot from fantasy authors like Laura Dusani and like um, yeah. But it's it's really. Well, that's really good. It's a fairy tale movie, but it's like a fairy tale for adults. Exactly. It's, mm. it's, yeah, and I, the ending, I was uh, almost cried at the ending, but mm. it just shows you, like, again, the horrors of war and how, and Del Toro, he was really talking about fascist Spain at the time. And, like, mm. you know, they had evil people there. I mean, Franco was not the, he's not, he wasn't the best human being ever. <laughs> so, like, yeah. I just loved how, um, and even then, like, I'm sure you know this, Dane, but, like, remember the scene with the pale man? Where he was, he was eating the kids? Their Toro pulled that from a Goya painting. Oh, that's right. Of Kronos eating his children? I think it's Goya. Mm. It might not be Goya, but it's, it's a painting that, that inspired him. 
Yeah, I just love how artful the film was. And, and the pile. Yeah, it's, it's a really good movie. And also, not to mention, the for more war parallels, the pile of empty children's shoes and clothes was reminiscent was actually, of yeah. the Holocaust also. Yeah, that was actually reminiscent of the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's so much symbolism in it. And it's, um, yeah, one of, one of those movies you feel like, yeah, it's just, it, it really affects you. It really affects you and stays with you for a long time. And I think that's that's what I was kind of going for with this list. So that's definitely one of the, the most uh, affecting movies I've ever seen. And for number nine, it's another modern film, uh, 2013's Her, which I actually had in my number yes. one in uh, 2010s, I think. Yeah, I think that was my was. number one. That's, that's my number one of top 10 films of 2000s. Wow, nice. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I love her. I love that movie. Yeah, same here. It's, it's, I mean, you can talk so much about the look of it, the visual style, the world building, but it's most of all just the universal message in it. I mean, it's it's like um, our, our relationship with technology, but also our yearning just for human connection beyond everything else and how... Um, uh, yeah, we can live in a world where we're all connected, or we have virtual assistants, or whatever. But at the end of the day, we need human. We need humanity, and I think that's really relevant in 2020 when we're all isolated and staring at computer screens all day. I think we can all relate to. Um, oh yes. Walking uh, Phoenix's character Theodore in the film. Yeah, I related to a lot. I mean, I mean, and then like the ending too was. Oh man, the ending was a little sad. But yeah. yeah, it's a great film. It won Best Original Screenplay, and I'm glad it did. Yeah, same here. It's a great film. Uh, one of the, D- the DP is one of my favorite cinematographers, Hoyt Van Hoytema. And he directed, the, he directed the heck out of it. He did such a great job. The color palette was just so amazing. It was. Yeah. Really helped to tell the story as well, the color palette, such as the color red in the protagonist, uh, Theodore, I believe his name was. Yeah. It's like red, which... Is obvious, obviously represents love or a desire for a longing for something special in your life. Really well done. Yep. Yeah, and uh, the, scope, the ambition of it, I mean, they filmed in two continents, uh, I think Los Angeles and I think Shanghai, China, and they were able to merge the two to make it look seamlessly like one location. I think that's absolutely uh, genius that they were able to pull it off. I mean, that's not easy to do, so... Uh, for, for as far as production, as far as writing, like you said, it's I think it's one of those perfect modern classics, in my opinion. And for number eight, this is a very kind of personal choice, but I think it's I think it's even in the future it'll be looked at even in better. Like it's it had great reviews, but I think it'll be even more appreciated in the future. Which is um, 2001's uh, yeah 2001's Amelie. The French film by uh, Jean-Pierre Jeunet, uh, starring Audrey Tattoo. Uh, this movie is just like, I think it's a nostalgia factor. This is always, this was the film that was on my parents' shelf, like the cover of it, the DVD on my parents' shelf all throughout my childhood, and I was always fascinated by it. Her, her face, Audrey Tattoo's, uh, I think I've talked about this in other episodes, but it's her, it's her face and her like, her whimsical sort of like, she's very like she's like this magical character in it as a child I was really like even though it wasn't really it's not a children's movie it's an adult 
romance, drama, I was really connected to it. And then when I finally watched it as a teenager, yeah, it quickly became one of my favorites. And uh, similar similar in the sense of uh, Pan's Labyrinth, it's sort of similar without being as dark. It's a lot more of a feel-good film. It's like the feel-good Pan's Labyrinth. Um, pretty much, it makes you feel happy the whole way through, but it's also very idealistic and colorful and really interesting dialogue, great characters, and... Uh, great uh, cinematography and score and so that's one that I would recommend to, to anyone to uh, to watch it yeah it's on, it's on my watch list I'm gonna watch that soon oh yeah I highly recommend it yeah. Yeah. very memorable film and it makes you want to go to Paris like so badly when you see it because it's just it shows Paris like I know Paris isn't, isn't the city it is in the movie that's sort of like the romanticized version but it does show it in a light that's just like, wow, the city looks so charming, right? And just so full of uh, interesting things that you can find in the streets. So great film. Um, number seven, I'll have to go with The Shining. Stanley mm, Kubrick. Here's uh, Johnny. <laughs> that was a great one. That's a horror classic. What? Yeah, in this film, I don't know how many times, like 12, 12, 13 times. I just saw it like two weeks ago, three weeks ago again. Um, it's, it's the film that really, I think I, I was kind of unsure of when I first saw it in, in films, in film class in high school, I, I didn't understand it. I was like, I mean, it looks really good. It's really, it's really interesting, but I didn't get it until you watch it a few more times. You read about it, watch analysis and you're like, wow, there's so many layers to this. There's so many different ways of seeing this film. And uh, I know, like, there's a whole document. I just watched it last week, a whole documentary about um, just the many different interpretations of it. And just I, every single one seems like it could be there's some truth to it, potentially. There's some validity, maybe some more than others. But, but yeah, you could you could look at this film in a 100 different ways. And I think that's really oh, yeah. interesting. That was Stanley Kubrick's purpose as well, to make the film has different meanings and interpretations. I bet when you when one first watches this film and says, I don't get it, I think Kubrick would take that as a compliment. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think um, it's watching it this recent time through the lens of my, my film class, which was to kind of look at it, at the social uh, critique of it and how it kind of represents the... Um, American colonialism and the uh, genocide of the indigenous people in the United States. I think seeing it through that lens, I was like, wow, this is very, it's just, it's just so, it makes you feel so disturbed by it because it is so terrifying. And it's, especially with that historical element to it, you're, you start to realize, yeah, that makes sense. And um, I mean, the, the ambition behind it as well, so much went behind making this movie and, um, you know, it wasn't loved at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. It had some push from some people, but it eventually just kind of found its spot, I think, where it deserves as a, as a classic. So well-deserved, I think. Was. Yeah, it is. And this film was also a good choice as well, because this film was very influential in the horror genre. It subverted, or in this case, inverted so many tropes we've come to know by now in this genre. Like, no jump scares, more slow building dread and tension. Like, before Hereditary, there was The Shining. Yeah, I agree. The Shining was, it was scary, man. It was... 
Yeah, I watched it um, last year, 2019, for the first time. And yeah, it really, it really scared the crap out of me. You know, like, uh, it's a very influential film. You can see its influence in movies like Us and like, um, and, and Kubrick, he really wanted to make, whenever Kubrick took on a job, a project, he wanted it to be like a masterpiece in that genre. And I feel like he's done that with, with horror. Uh, Stephen King wrote the wrote the great book about it. He wrote the book it's based on. Even though they had issues like <laughs> King and Ip Kubrick had issues on the movie, but it's really well made. Um, yeah, it's just scared the crap out of me. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's one of those films that that's just the music, the, the ballroom music and everything. It's, it's, it's really psychological. And I think, uh, yeah, the more you think about it, it's just the more uh, disturbing it gets, but it's yeah, so good. Great film. And for number six, I have to go with uh, Apocalypse Now, Francis mm. uh, Ford uh, Coppola's 1979 uh, war epic. It's, yeah. I love that film. Yeah, this film I saw when I was probably 18 or 19, and um, yeah, I I mean, I love it for a lot of different reasons. I love it for its its aesthetic, like it's just so beautiful in every in every scene. It's not really it never feels or never looks like it's a it's a shot just for the sake of this is the story. It's just every shot looks purposeful, but also. I've never seen a war movie that's taking this sort of perspective on, on the Vietnam War and how it just does not make it look patriotic, does not make it look glorified. It's just it just shows the harshness of it and the, the terror of it. And yeah. Um, yeah, it shows it shows war as almost like a drug, as war is almost like mm-hmm. this hallucinogenic experience that's mm-hmm. otherworldly, you know, and that people can't really describe. It's like you enter another world once you get to go to Vietnam. It feels that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, absolutely. It's it's like a nightmare, but it's it's surreal, almost surreal in some ways. And just like the whole Colonel, like Colonel Kurtz, uh, just the tracking of him down is just so intriguing. Like you're like, who is this Colonel Kurtz, Marlon Brando's character? You really have no idea what to expect, and when you finally it's revealed at the end, and he's like living in the jungle, and he has like he's like basically like just become this rogue ex uh, military guy that's just basically become this just this other like he's like not from this world almost like he's like <laughs> it's like yeah his character, but he's just so scary, menacing, and uh, yeah, it's just. That ending scene with the doors, uh, the end, and uh, just the build-up to that final scene is just unbelievable. I mean, yeah, the scene of when Michael Douglas, is it Michael? No, um, Martin Sheen, I'm sorry, Martin Sheen. When he came out of the water, and you see only yeah. see half his face. That's such yeah. an iconic image. Like, when I think- he's going down to, to assassinate Kurtz. Yeah. And, yeah, it's just really well... Ah, it's a real amazing movie. I've only seen the Redux versions. I've only seen the extended version. I watched it back in 2018, Spring Break of 2018, and I loved it. And yeah, it's one of the best films I've ever seen. 
do the opening sequence with that song, oh my God. <laughs> I remember watching that in film class in 2017, and I was like, whoa, like I've never seen an opening scene like that. This yeah. is the end. You see the explosion in slow motion. Oh, I know. It just feels so like, oh my goodness, this is... It's psychedelic, this, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's psychedelic. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, it's, it's a masterpiece and, uh, I mean, like, a, hell, a hellish sort of production to pull off. I mean, it almost didn't work, yeah. but the fact that it worked and it was as good as it is and just, wow, all of those pieces that came together, it's really special. So, and then how it doesn't shy away from the brutal, honest truth of war just being just disgusting, right? So it's an amazing film that way. Um, and for number five, I have uh, 1948, uh, the Italian film, two titles, Bicycle Thieves or The Bicycle Thief. Uh, oh, yeah, I've heard of that. I love the film. That's yeah. in my top 100. Nice. Yeah, Vittorio De Sica, I think. De Sica? Yes, Vittorio De Sica. Yeah, and in Italian, the film Ladri de Ladri di Bicyclette, Bicyclette, I think. <laughs> my Italian's not great, but uh, yeah, this film, I saw this in film class in university, and um, I was, I think, yeah, I was pretty much almost in tears because. It's just so you, you you empathize so much with the character, the main character and his son, and just the strive for a better life. And basically, they're just—it's not like they're trying to become, you know, financially, you know, wealthy. They're just trying to survive. They're just trying to make ends meet as a family. And you know, everything is kind of against them in this like post-war landscape in Italy. And um, I think the main character uh, Antonio and his son Bruno—they're well, Antonio finally gets a job with uh, putting up posters around the city with his bicycle, yeah. and his bicycle gets stolen, and the rest of the film is just him trying to find the bicycle and the thieves that have taken his bike, and um, Bruno, his son, he's like maybe five years old, I don't know, maybe less, four years old, just kind of follows him around Rome in search of the bike, and it's just, he's seeing like the pain and agony that his, his dad's experiencing under this economic stress and pressure to make ends meet. And it's just, you know, this child is way too young to be experiencing this type of hardship and worry and stress and anxiety, but it's unfortunately real life for a lot of people and was for a lot of people in the past too. So yeah, it's a film that, uh, I'll, ne I'll never forget. I'll never forget it. Yeah. It's a great film. I mean, it's, really about like fatherhood and masculinity and how he didn't want to let his son down and at some point in the movie you feel like he's going to find it but uh, I don't want to I guess I spoiled it now but you know, I don't think he ever found the bike so um, yeah it's it's um it's sad it's a it's a sad movie because it shows you the poverty and the harshness of life and um in Italy at the time, it's a it's a good example of Italian neorealism. Mm -hmm. I mean, like that's basically like that movie is seen as like an, uh, an uh, iconic iconic example of that film movement. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was beautifully done. I watched it a few years ago, and it was so I was never bored with it. It was just such an amazing story. Yeah, it's a simple story. It's very simple. Yeah. I'm with you. It's it's the perfect length. It's it's like 
has so much emotion in it and it yeah it's never boring never boring even though you know like people can kind of be put off by you know it's black and like i love black and white film i'm a huge oh, fan too. of film. but like there are some people that are generally kind of they think oh well you know they, they question it but like even in my film class like people were you could tell glued to it they, they loved every scene and you could you could see that even though it's you know from the 40s it resonated with young people today and it's it's by no means like dated at all it's a it's a classic and yeah i think um it's one i think i would recommend to everyone to watch definitely yeah. of course um oh sorry sorry you're gonna say something oh no, no, no i'm just gonna say of course i'll definitely watch it for sure for sure yeah Number four, I would go with uh, No Country for Old Men. Yes. So, yes. Uh, 2000, what, 2007, I think? Yeah, that's so, right. Yeah, I, I love this film. It's one of the first films I actually really loved as a teenager that I realized film is not just entertainment. It is, it is also something a little bit, a little bit more important than entertainment, I think. And uh, yeah, it's just like, it's one of those movies I could watch a hundred times. I still, I'm on the edge of my seat throughout the whole thing. The the thrill of the sort of cat and mouse game, and the just the the darkness to it, like the real just sense of like there is no justice, there is no like there is no real sense of um, evil being properly dismantled when there's just like this pure evil in the world, and it's it's, it's scary that way, but it's also really. Um, good life lesson i mean like it, it shows how kind of you're you think you can escape your reality but it always kind of follows you right so uh, it's, it's really about like the lawlessness of 1980 is west texas of like it just talking to jones character he said there was one guy who one police officer who didn't carry a gun or something like that mm-hmm. but like now i was like you'd be crazy if you did not if you didn't have a gun Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's just so it's a completely different yeah. landscape I mean the American frontier in that movie and how like how to combat evil is just so the evil there is just so incomprehensible like how things are just so different it was different from the idealistic oh we know what the good bad, bad guys are mm-hmm. this and that that's true but now it's just everything is just a free for all and yeah it was a really good movie Mm-hmm. Very, very poignant. Very, yeah. It had a lot to say. And I, it's, it's it's in my top one hundred too. Nice. Right. Yeah. And Shigur and Javier Bardem's Anton Shigur is, in my opinion, one of the best villains of all time. Like he is so chilling, and it's not just the haircut. Yeah, like even in. Um, even in the book, when uh, when the brothers were talking about making it, in the book that it's based on, like you never know what ethnicity he is, and so they kind of they kind of kept that in the movie. Like you don't know where he's from. That kind of adds the horror, because like or the scary, because like you can't categorize this person. You can't. You don't know where he's from. Mm, yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's very. He's very like. He's not. He's not really. Uh, yeah yeah he seems like the devil basically mm-hmm. like he's, yeah he's just basically the devil and he's not really like the same as everyone else he's just purely like there to cause sort of you know well 
he's there to, to basically make money, but at the end of the day, it's like he, he'll literally do anything to, to get there, and it's it's crazy. But it's it shows just that like that force that is I, I don't know like I I'd, I'd like to think that there isn't pure evil in the world, but there, I think there are historical examples that yes there has been, and he is just like that historical example I think reflected in the movie of just this force that no one can really stop and will do whatever it takes to damage everything in its path and yeah it's it's really it really is like an like almost like an anti-western right like there's mm. no cliche of it being a western it's very yeah, much like I, I would have to agree because like like i said about the lawlessness it's kind of like a film i haven't seen this film but it's kind of like unforgiven and how that film with Clint Eastwood, both these movies were kind of talking about their, their, the idealism of past Western movies is kind of under undermined by these movies. Like they, they don't, they're not idealistic at all. Like there's just, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So true. Yeah. And going into the next film is kind of my number three sort of relates to this a little, a little bit. Taxi Driver, um, awesome. his, his probably his yeah his one of his one of his most offbeat films because I mean it's a Scorsese film like you you feel you feel that it is but it's very mm, I guess it's it's not you can't really compare it to anything else done I guess it's just so like the character arc of Robert De Niro's character getting mm-hmm. uh, his name uh, Travis Bickle. It is just so. It is just so for the time, right? Like late seventies, there were all of these really weird characters that were kind of coming up in society, and people were questioning why was this going on in the United States. And it kind of it reflects just is the economic turmoil. It's just a kind of corruption. It's the just the general lack of sort of um, I guess morals, right, in in society at that time. Yeah. Like the moral decay and. Uh, and how um, Taxi Driver really shows how not this. I'm not saying like the '70s were like that. Like I'm just. I think that's the kind of perspective in the film. But um, yeah, it really shows New York through a totally different lens. New York is usually this like glamorous, uh, really stylish place, but it just shows that it's like this is time in New York that's it's pretty pretty seedy and pretty pretty messed up. And it doesn't shy away from the reality of what Times Square was like, and the um, just the iconic shots, like driving through Times Square, the lights, the yellow taxi cab, and just the sort of that violence you can just feel is like around every corner. You never know what's going to happen in that movie. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, it's just it's good from beginning to end. So I watch this. I need to see it. I gotta, I gotta rewatch it. I watched it, like the first ten minutes, but I never finished it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 really good. I think, uh, for example, if you've seen, um, you were never really here, or you were never. Oh, was it? You're never really here. You're never really there. I always mess up the title. Uh, <laughs> you were never really here. The Walking Phoenix movie from a couple years ago, uh, Lynn Ramsey film. That film is like a kind of a really interesting sort of like rehash of the same sort of not exact same but similar elements, but it's sort of like a vigilante film where this guy takes matters into his own hand, into his own hands when he realizes like the law isn't really there to protect the citizens and the most vulnerable people 
So yeah, this film is um, it's disturbing. It's it's traumatizing, but it's I think it's one of the best films. Yes, and I hear with 2019's Joker was hugely influenced by Taxi Driver being a protagonist journey to villain. Yeah, I can yeah, it is. Yeah, absolutely. Big influence, definitely. And number two, I'm gonna. It's gonna be a little bit of more of a comedic, comedic uh, transition. It's, well, it's still dark, but pulp fiction. Yes. Uh, oh, yes. I love that movie. I do think it has a lot of comedy. Like it's not like it's not quite as heavy as you know, Taxi Driver or Apocalypse Now. So it's a little bit, a little bit light, more lighthearted at times. It's not to say that it's you know it's a full-on comedy. It's still really <laughs> disturbing and and pretty dark. But I mean. It's just that quintessential 90s crime drama that uh, opened, I think, everyone up to Tarantino. And I think it's his best film, and it's probably probably one of the best of the 90s. And one that I could watch, if it's on TV, I'll watch it. I'll watch it from any point in the film, and I'll watch it because it's always entertaining. And it's, uh, yes, yeah, nostalgia factor too, but it's, it's really, it's few, few films like it, I think, very few films like it. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good movie. I mean, it's it plays on Tarantino's playing around with nonlinear storylines. Mm. And it's really like a story about L.A. And, like, you can tell that Tarantino had fun doing making the movie. Cause oh, yes. It's, it's very much um, a, a, like, a, like a hangout movie. It's like, it's like it has a plot, but it's not like an end of the world type plot it's just these characters you know mingling with each other and the drama that comes from it so yeah it's very interesting very good yeah yeah the dialogue so many quotes so many iconic lines and uh so many scenes that are just like if you talk if you're if you're going to talk about like some of the best uh shots or the best sort of um character dynamics you can take a lot from Pulp Fiction mm-hmm. this is a tasty burger what they call a quarterback with cheese Royale with cheese <laughs> like Tarantino you know why they called that and he said because of the metric system and he said that's right you're a smart mother <laughs> <laughs> love it yeah I love that scene oh I'm sorry did I break your concentration <laughs> they speak English and what say what say what again I dare you I dare <laughs> like wow so quotable love it really good choice man. <laughs> love it yeah I, I, I'm never tired of it so that's the big reason why I said number two and, and number one yes. I think I'll have to go with A Clockwork Orange today wow that was your favorite of the 70s too wow yes yeah favorite of the 70s so it's kind of a you know it's kind of a controversial pick to go number one but it's one that I really I feel like I don't know I feel like it just when I watched it I felt like I I really experienced something I'd never I'd never experienced before oh I bet so uh, you really you really feel like there's a point to it all like it's, it's that's at certain points you feel like okay this is just a disturbing just gross movie at times like I felt that too also I, I felt that way the first time but then I kind of at the end of it you realize that it really is a critique of the, of the justice system of the prison system and how 
you know, once you go into it, is there a way out of it, right? Like it's, it's yeah. sort of that, um, the cruel society kind of breeds cruel people, right? And that's kind of the message of it, I think. And um, it's really quite, it's really quite it's a terrifying movie, but it's, I think it's one that everyone should see just for the, just to realize we should never go this path to become yeah. sort of authoritative uh, prison, uh, you know, prison state. Like that's just not something that would ever go well. So yeah, and cinematography is amazing. The style is amazing. It's a pretty, it's a pretty like just clever film and how it's produced. Like there's scenes that you can tell. It's like the driving scene in the car where it's just like it's clearly just like in a studio but it doesn't matter like it doesn't matter because the, the feel is so good and like the just the, the editing is so good that it doesn't have to be like the most maybe expensive or the most sort of visually uh, immersive well it is visually immersive but it's not like you, you can tell that it, they got away with a lot of very practical effects which I love and it works for it I was cured all right. <laughs> really amazing selections, Dane. First off, does it help to notice that I've watched six out of ten of these films and the other three of your films on the list are, th I share three of them as well on my list. It's really, really, really good choices, guys. Really great choices. So I guess that just leaves me for the ranking. Number 10. So we have all seen great war movies in our time. Some people love Apocalypse Now. Some people love Saving Private Ryan. But to me, no war movie has impressed me and given me so much, so much amazement other than Dunkirk by Christopher Nolan. I, I love that film. It's in my top 100, too. Nice. Like Dunkirk is a very unique type of war film. While most war films are about defeating the enemy, this one is about escaping the enemy live to fight another day yeah and it plays on Nolan's strengths again the nonlinear storyline uh, the enemy of that film is time mm. you never see the Germans so it's not about the Germans even though the Germans were the enemy in that in that in the history but the enemy was was time like can we get out in time can we survive in time? Exactly. And it's so simple. It's a callback to like, it's a callback to um, to older classical storytelling. Like just simple plot, uh, simple story. You know, will these people get out? And this is a great job. And the way, man, the, some of the shots in the movie were amazing. Oh yes, very beautifully oh, shot film. And luckily, I watched. I first watched this film in IMAX when it came out. And it was glorious. Just drink it in. <laughs> and the thing about Dunkirk is that I love how it shows, like most war films, it shows the brutal realities of war without glorifying it, without showing too much gratuitous gore or violence. That would be too much. And I feel Dunkirk demonstrates that the horrors of war without exploiting it a lot 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, something that Nolan is good at is putting the audience inside the psychological states of his characters. And he does that with a lot of his films. And it's like the opening scene of Dunkirk was was, mm-hmm. was scary. It was. Like, you felt like you were actually there. Um, so it's, it's a really well-done movie. It's in my top 100. I think it's Nolan's best film. Wow. Impressive. That's not a popular opinion, but... And and this film too, despite being a war film, I it earns very high points as well for its hopeful message because that we live to fight another day. The war is not over, but we will still keep on fighting. We shall never surrender. And this film also I even though I'm not a British citizen, it really really gave me that feeling of hope that this was really a glorious day for the for the British, even though the war was not over. They were just getting started. For sure. Yes. It's really a movie about, like I said in our Nolan episode, about the origin of a Dunkirk spirit. You know, how British people, they still remain relentless and, and persistent and, and, you know, getting what they, and persevering, I mean. Exactly. Yes. Very. This is probably also the best war film I've ever seen. And all an extra points to Hans Zimmer, who delivered one of the most immersive, powerful, and thought-provoking scores in his career. The music really helped to tell the story, and it earns high praise for me, for all of us. I'd say. Yeah, it's a great soundtrack. Yes. And at number nine. Is a film I share with you, Dane. Like, there, this film is a blend of so many genres. It's one part war, one part horror, and one part fantasy. Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro, or as I like to call it, Alice in Wonderland meets Rambo. <laughs> this film, I. I I first watched this film back when I was in Spanish film studies in my last year of high school. And this film really was immersive. At its core, films are about escapism. And I think from my experience, no film has shown that side other than Pan's Labyrinth. Because Pan's Labyrinth is escapism in essence, because it's about a child who's trying to escape the harsh realities of her world and go into a more brighter one. Yeah, it's, it's, God, it's just so much great imagery in that movie. It's so it calls back like fantasy um, authors like I can't remember all I only remember is Lord Dusani but also um, what's the guy's name I can't remember but yeah the symbolism of the fawn and like the forest yeah it calls back like ancient storytelling of like stories that are set in, in forest fairy tales set in forest things like that you can you can go down Goldilocks or there's a whole list of them but yeah it's just so it's such a beautiful film because it's for it's spanish so i like that it has del toro is coming from his own experience his own um as a hispanic person and spoke a lot about how why kids would would uh, want to 
you know, and it's just really, really, it's a, it's not a fairy tale for adults. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Right on. And also the. The, this film also introduced one of the most important themes in Del Toro's films. Humans are the real monsters. Because the film's villain, Captain Vidal, a human being, manages to be far more terrifying than the actual creatures in the film. Even the pale man. Yeah, he was the... Um, he represented the authoritarian side of Franco... Francis Franco of Spain and you know they were they're bad people I mean they France Franco Spain was a very authoritarian um, society so it's like the, the story needed a villain I felt like Del Toro chose a good villain but um but yeah it's just sad the ending was sad man like and but Sorry about that. No but, um, but yeah, it's like it, the ending was bad for him too. Like, <laughs> like how the resistance people treated him, what they did to him. So, because he had it coming. I mean, it, he, he did so many horrible things. Was yeah. So exactly. Um, but yeah, I just loved how he his function in the story was to kind of be part of that sad ending for Ophelia for her character. Yes. But it, it depends on how you look at it. Like, yes. maybe she, you know, maybe she didn't die. Maybe she went somewhere else. Or, but yeah, it's it's a good um good movie. Definitely yes, and also by far my favorite international film as well. Really masterful work. This is one of a perfect movie, I'd say. Yeah, yeah I could rewatch that film so many times. Same here. Yeah. I still get scared by the pale man, though. <laughs> <laughs> right? God. And those, those, the thing with us with his eyes. Oh, God. Jesus. That scared the crap yeah. out of me. We should all go to the um, Guillermo del Toro uh, has a museum in, I think, uh, Guadalajara, Mexico. I think that's Ooh. where all of the creatures are in the museum from all the films. It would be amazing. I've always wanted to go. That would be an amazing trip. Road trip, road trip. Amazing, yes. I, I second this. Yeah. Um, at number eight, yet another film I share with you, Dane, goes to a film that changed the genre forever. And in this case, the Western genre, No Country for Old Men by the Coen Brothers. Now, what can I say that hasn't been said about this film? Well, for one... I like it when films are subversive of a genre. And No Country for Old Men was this for the Western genre. Because in the the common laws of Westerns, we had the protagonist who was a brave, daring, good-hearted cowboy who kills the bad guy, saves the girl, and walks off into the sunrise and the sunset. But with No Country for Old Men, the rules are broken because the film the characters are the main character is shade morally shady and the film ends in a bit of an anti-climax which is this shows it's a different kind of film that the coen brothers are saying you to those who grew up with western films that's not gonna be the case with us yeah like a big a big artistic choice that was amazing that they made was this is a spoiler, but when they didn't show Llewellyn's death, it was mm-hmm. off screen. 
So it just shows like how insignificant the main character was or how how the story is so lawless and so like Mm -hmm. you feel like you have a protagonist but you really don't and it's like it shows how it's it's not an idealistic movie it's a very um, uh, pessimistic movie and that's shown in like how the story is told exactly very yeah yeah it's it's very very well done very awesome artistic choice very among other things very nihilistic as well like it and it basically asks how can we all live in a world just so full of pointless violence like humans are just animal like rabid animals trying to escape their captive state by hurting others it's really it's a very tragic yet brutally honest side of reality where there's no easy answer yeah and Tommy Jones character was commenting on that like how it's just he was talking to his father or his grandfather or somebody and he had a dream he said he had a dream but I mean you can take it you can see so many interpretations of the dream but it's just really about he just was out of his element he just didn't know how that place anymore exactly. it's just gotten so crazy it's gotten so lawless mm. yeah. like there's been a shift in environment for him yeah he, we're living in a in a new world basically yeah and yeah like I overall I love I really love this film it's the acting is great cinematography well done and I love the choice to not include any little to no music it really adds the tension, lets the audience know that something wicked this way comes. <laughs> Harry Potter, something wicked this way comes. <laughs> and also, to, as a testament to how great this film was, it was nominated for eight and even won an Oscar for Best Picture as well. That is a high testament to the power yeah, of the Coen brothers. They won Best Adapted Screenplay as well. Did. And it did. Yes. At my number seven, we all love action films. We all grew up with action films. Some people love Die Hard, Speed, but to me, no action movie has ever connected with me on an emotional level or amazed me other than Terminator 2 Judgment Day. This film is, to me, the quintessential sequel, what a sequel should be, building up on the original and adding new immersive stuff. Like in most action films today, the action scenes are just done for shock value or spectacle. But with T2, the action scenes, not only are they memorable, but they add something to the story. They help to move the story forward. They have a reason for existing in the narrative. Yeah, I remember watching an interview at the, I think it was the Writers Guild of America. They did interviews with all these uh, action screenwriters and other professionals. And uh, Zach Penn, who he, he wrote Ready Player One, he said that he likes the action in Terminator 2 because it all serves a story. Like, everything in that movie serves a point. And he's right. Like, 
Like, if you look, if you look closely at Terminator 2, like, um, certain, like, everything that the characters do is to serve the story, to serve the plot. Exactly. For better or for worse, but I think it's, it's really good. Exactly. Like, um, they're all story beats that happen. If you look closely, like, him, like, Terminator rescuing John for the first time. Like, that's also introducing his characters, introducing the way he thinks, the way he, um, talk, the way he operates with, talks with John. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's really well done. It is, yeah. So many scenes like that. Oh, yeah. And not only is it great in telling and showing awesome and memorable action sequences, but it really succeeds in telling a very simple yet powerful story with very human and likable characters that we can root for and relate to as well. Sarah Connor, John, and even the Terminator. Just really love how they managed to pull that off. It's not just an action movie. But it's also a story about what it means to be human as well, a la Blade Runner. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's one of the best sci-fi action films. James Cameron, he's good with he's good with taking a second film of its franchise and making it better. <laughs> exactly. He did that with Aliens and now with Terminator 2. But, mm. but yeah, it was just a great film. Yeah. I, I, I watched it as a kid and it had an impact on me. Yes. Kid, it's just something about it that was just amazing. It was. Uh, so I rewatched it a few times. So yeah, it's 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 a good movie. It is, yeah. At my number six goes to an earlier film I saw in my childhood. Like we all love blockbusters, but with this film, none of the amazing blockbusters from Star Wars to Harry Potter would ever be possible. So I give this one to Jaws by Steven Spielberg. Wow. Yes, Jaws was... Steven Spielberg has made so many great films over the years, but to me I feel this is his magnum opus. His, the story was very basic and simple, but really memorable. Just a shark terrorizing a town and a group of men coming in to save the day. That's all we need to know, and that is enough to create movie magic. Yeah, I remember watching that film when I was younger, too. and had an impact as well. Um, yeah, it's just... You get so it builds up to when they those guys have to track down the fish and the shark and kill it, and it just it's just so suspenseful. Like just people like are they gonna make it? Are they gonna succeed? And it's like this is well done. Yeah. It was, yeah, and. I know there are some people who give flack that oh it's a shark movie but the shark barely appears but that that they're missing the point because even when the shark doesn't show up in those scenes where we hear the music and see it from its point of view you can still feel its presence and it's also kind of justified because the shark they used for the film didn't work so that's one of the few cases where something that doesn't work can actually be a tool in creating amazing storytelling yeah it made me scared of sharks man that made me <laughs> i didn't want to go in the water 
you know, right. come out and get you, man. <laughs> right. And the, and it's the shark. It still looks impressive, even 45 years later. And this film wouldn't be possible. Also, with thanks to the musical talent of John Williams, who scared us with just two lines of music. Dun 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 dun. Like yeah. it's amazing, really. Love it. Uh, John Williams, he always does a good job as a composer. Mm, yes. Always. Yeah. Before Hans Zimmer, there was John Williams. Yeah. Yep. Just Jaws was a masterpiece, really. One definitely one that I keep coming back to every summer as well. Yeah, it came out. It's the first blockbuster. It came out during the summer. Mm, right. uh, I forgot what year. What year did it come out? Uh, 75, 1975. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That is 75. Yeah. And also, amazing. It is. And Jaws, like, It also succeeds in what most big monster movies fail, and it's also creating really realistic characters and one that the audiences can really cheer and root for. It's not just all about the monster as well, because that's what most audiences come to see, but also about the human characters who are the heart of the story. I like uh, Sheriff Brody, uh, Quint, and um, the the marine biologist guy. They really, they re were really great characters as well. Yeah, I need to rewatch it. It's been a while since I've seen it. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a good movie. Thanks. And now we're in the halfway point. At number five is a sci-fi film. We all love sci-fi as well. Like, we all have our favorite sci-fi films. For you, it's Blade Runner. Some, it's Children of Men. Terminator. Star Wars. But for me, this film has taught us a very important lesson. That in space, no one can hear you scream. Alien by Ridley Scott. Nice. Uh, that's a good movie. Yes. I watched that some years ago on a Saturday night. I watched the whole movie front to back, beginning to end, and it's like, wow, this is really good. Yes. Like, this film really, much like Jaws, the, the alien, it really showed the power of minimalism that less is more, because in a two-hour film, the alien is in the movie for just get this four minutes and in just four minutes it became one of the most iconic movie monsters ever right there with godzilla or king kong it's impressive really yeah it's i don't know really scott he did such a good job with it um yeah it's because no no never um, a film has never been made like that films the horror film set in space So that was interesting, and he did a good job with it. Yes, yeah. Uh, it's a, I view it more as a science fiction horror film, but I think it is. But um, yeah, it's just something about it. Yeah, it just it, it changed sci-fi, changed sci-fi films at that point. After that film came out, you couldn't really. Everything was changed after that. Did yeah, yeah, and even in the structure as well, like before before alien came out most movies had three act structures 
when you first see Alien, you would think that the film ended when the Nostromo blew up, but Ridley Scott pulls off one last surprise and reveals the alien was in the escape pod with Ripley all along. Now that's how you subvert audience expectations too. Yeah, that was, that was the scariest part. I was I remember watching thinking, how is she going to get out of this? But she was able to do it. She was able to kill it. So. And of course that this film wouldn't reach iconic status without that scene you know the one the chest burster scene that was so uh, visceral so brutal and great acting as well and the actors reactions were completely genuine since they were not warned what was going to happen mm-hmm. yeah yeah that was an awesome piece of trivia that I found out and that's just good direction like that's how you get actors to do better at their jobs, if, you know, you, 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 it's good. A lot of people talk about practical effects and authenticity, but it's important because it helps the actors perform better. Yes. And I think in that case, it did. It does, yeah. And it's amazing to think Ridley Scott was very young and not very experienced with his craft during the making of Alien, but he managed to pull off what is considered the best sci-fi horror film and one of the best films of the 70s. Yes, it is. It's one of the best films of the 70s. It's in my top 100, too. Wow. Yeah, it's... But it really works as a sci-fi film, too. Yeah, it has horror, but it's a really good sci-fi film. I mean, it pulls from all different types of sci-fi traditions, like a spaceship, a person that's an android, a monster, or something, some threat that you have to face. So yeah, it's, it pulls from a lot of sci-fi tropes. It does, yes. Uh, it, it does a good job of it. Yes. At number four goes to yet another film of the 2010s. This one goes to Gone Girl by David Fincher. Wow, okay. Yes, God. This film, it it's a, a mastery in suspense like some of the great acting especially from Rosamund Pike as Amy Dunn like uh, you spoil incoming spoilers ahead but she, she really did a great job playing such a high functioning sociopath that she every time she's on screen you just are amazed by her acting prowess yeah, I still haven't seen it, but I know of that performance and it was really, I've seen a few scenes and it looks like it's just a very, very tense movie. Just so much tension in every, every scene. Mm-hmm. Yes. It is, it's, I think uh, Roseman Pike did a great job. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's like your standard thriller movie, but it's, but it also is, it has plot twists along the way. It's based on a book by Gillian Flynn. I would like to read it one time, but but yeah, it's I don't know. That film was that was like David Fincher's comeback after I believe he before that he did Curious Benjamin Button and then um, but yeah no he he did um, the Social uh, Network I believe Dragon, Dragon Tattoo oh right that yeah, one yeah that's Dragon Tattoo one. yeah but yeah that was. Um, that was a really well-made film. It was. And it was about marriage. It was about, like, mm-hmm. like what the facades we put up as people as when we start to 
court people or get into relationships. Exactly. Yeah. And it shows you the why we probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, and this is not just a great film, but also a very relevant one because it shows the dark side of the media, how the media just love to sensationalize everything. They love making villains out of people, paint them as cruel monsters and unsympathetic. Yeah, it was particularly talking about um I think there was a reporter on cable news. I think her name is Nancy Drew or Nancy Nancy something. So they basically, Ellen Abbott was basically a parody or a critique about that person. Her first name starts with Nancy. I can't remember her last name. And she, but she had like this very sensationalist program. Like everything that she said was fact, even though a lot of it was opinion. <laughs> so it was, yeah. It's, It's a nice parallel to that. Yes. Mm. Yes. And yeah, and like Gone Girl, I've, it feels long. I know it is almost three hours long, but it nothing feels rushed or if padding, it serves a purpose in the story. And every single minute you are just on the edge of your seat wondering what will happen next. This is probably David Fincher's best work yet. Yeah, it goes from a mystery movie to like a thriller. Like after that plot twist happens, it's a thriller. Yes. So that's what's pretty cool about it. How it flips, it goes into a different genre almost. You think it's just a mystery drama, a woman's gone missing. But then it turns into like this thriller for the last half of the movie. Oh yeah, I love that that whole twist too, that whole cool girl monologue. Just wow, fantastic. Just amazing work really yeah it's, like I said in our Fincher episode it gives you an insight into her, her, her psyche mm. and you, you understand why she's upset and why she did that even though it's evil but yeah does yeah and now at my number three i award the bronze medal to pulp fiction by quentin tarantino i watched this film when i was 12 years old and it sold me into the work of tarantino just this is a perfect movie in essence really everything about it the story is unique every scene is iconic and quotable and the characters are all very colorful as well particularly jules winfield you know samuel L. jackson's character and his love for bible speeches that was his breakthrough world like that was his he's using roles before that but then after Pulp fiction he started having his own roles And yeah, this is a great film. I like it's a hangout movie. It's a movie that just follows these characters and what they do. There's really no plot. I mean, there's some semblance of a plot, but it's really about the characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like the one thing that ties it all together would be the the case, the suitcase, you know, Marcellus Wallace's case, which is a very good example of a MacGuffin. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's true. <laughs> What do you think was in it, Nick? Well, I believe in this theory that inside the case is actually Marcellus Wallace's soul, which is why he has that big bandage stuck in his neck. And the case's combination, 666, the mark of the beast. That's... A lot of people, a lot of people... Um... 
have that viewpoint. I uh, think I told you my viewpoint. It was like, very complicated like, what I said though. Like, <laughs> like I can't remember something. Oh yeah, this is this is not just me. I I, I read this on an article. Um, so basically, the briefcase represents, uh, I believe, it represents blues or music, or like the music, and how like Jules represents Jimi Hendrix, and like um, John Zabrola's character represents. Uh, I don't want to say Elvis, but another person. I think it's Elvis. And they're trying to reclaim it from all these other people. So, like, Brent and all his friends, they represent, like, the the, the, the newer musicians that want to, they want to get uh, R&B. But um, Marcellus is, is sending Jimi Hendrix and uh, Elvis to reclaim it for him. <laughs> so that's, that's the gist of it. It's, very, it's a little bit complicated than that, but that's the gist of it. That's pretty funny. Uh, that, that's that's the beauty of Pulp Fiction. Is you know, it's it's so ambiguous, but it's it's everyone can you know see it in a new, different way. Which is yeah, I love films like that. I think yes. that's what makes it so good. I really yeah. love Tarantino's mastery of dialogue. Like he can make the most mundane everyday conversations really intriguing like a conversation about burgers foot massages marriage problems just this film is a masterpiece tarantino's mona lisa if i may call it yeah it's it's his best film one of his best films yes definitely number two I award the silver medal to a horror film. The horror genre is my favorite genre of all. We all have our favorite horror films. For you, then it's The Shining. Then there's we also have The Exorcist, The Fly, The Thing. But for me, no horror film has impacted my childhood other than Halloween by John Carpenter. Wow. This film... Nice. That's good. Wow. This is the film that popularized not just slasher but the horror genre without halloween we wouldn't come back to the theaters every year to watch horror what's in store for us it's just this film was shot on a very low budget but it managed to do so so much from the characters the music the or the suburban location but to me what really stands out in this film would have to be the film's villain michael myers who is in my opinion one of the best villains of all time yeah he's a scary presence i mean mm-hmm. even before i remember i haven't finished watching halloween but i liked how it set up his arrival like he was already this scary figure that you couldn't identify and then, of course, when he does finally show up, it's it's crazy, and that's good horror. That's what good horror does. It it it, it draws you in to like the story and the world, and then it lets you wait until the main threat comes or the horror comes. Exactly. And yeah, it's that's really that's really good. Building suspense, yeah, and there's yeah. also 
great example of the less is more because we don't know anything about Michael. Like Michael Myers was meant to be pure evil personified. He wasn't just killing because he's been abused, he's angry with the world, or to prove a point, or even for revenge. He just kills because that's it. There's no because. That's what makes it scary, that there's just no motive behind this character. He's just this psychotic prick who defies all logic and rationality. It's chilling, really. Yeah, it's realistic to how serial killers really are. Like, if you look at all the serial killers, especially in American history, there's no rhyme or reason. They just did it because they wanted it to. And it's, it's scary because, like, a lot of times victims are women. And it's like, it's just like, like why did this have to happen? But then this guy was just sick. He was, he just wanted to do it. And it, that's what that's what's scary about it. Exactly. You know, yeah. we're always looking for a reason, but they don't have a reason. Exactly, yeah, and and this film really, it's proof that a true classic never goes out of style, and it also is a testament that John Carpenter is the master of horror himself. Love it, just wonderful. Yeah, he's, he's a phenomenal director. Wonderful, yes. And now, here it comes, my number one. Drum roll. This film is an amalgamation of everything that makes such a perfect movie, in my opinion. Number one shall go to The Dark Knight by Christopher Nolan. Oh, of course, okay. Nice. This is so much more than just a superhero film it's just it's a dark crime thriller it's some it adds something new to the genre like some people say superhero movies are just for the fans but the dark knight proves that wrong it's a film that appeals to both audiences moviegoers superhero fans and just anyone who just wants to see a good movie that's so true yeah it is true yeah yeah i think it's one of those it's like one of those films that uh it trans transcends i can't speak transcends the genre like completely and i think that's one of the i would argue one of the best examples of that happening in the superhero genre i think maybe the best example of it just it's no longer just a superhero film it's it's crime it's a thriller it's a drama it's almost everything along with being a superhero film so yeah that's a great great choice does yes yeah, for it's, sure it's one of the best films i've ever seen nice yeah yes. it's probably the still the best it's the best batman um mm. uh, i really do love the original batman but i don't know i feel like dark knight is is even better yes um, yes yeah Great screenplay, great acting, mm-hmm. and it has something to say. It was talking about like nine eleven and terrorism and things like that. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really good movie. It is, yeah, and of course we'll have we'll have to talk more about. Heath Ledger was the star of the show 
Stephen, from the words of the King of Horror himself, Stephen King, the strength of a story depends on the strength of its villain, and Heath Ledger's Joker is one of the best villains of the 21st century in anything, in pop culture, really. He really gave his all with his this performance, like, the Joker isn't some, you know, classy supervillain, he's... He's a terrorist. He's a guy who is tired of the status quo and believes that chaos should be the natural order. It's, it really made the character realistic with, with people like that are on the news sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah, it speaks about, like, modern-day terrorism and America's... Uh, kind of America's place in the world, but... It's just a story that's very timely, very... It's a quintessential American story, too. And, yeah, it's just really well done. Yeah, it's... Everything about that film, I can't find a single flaw in the film. Exactly. It's, really that, it's that perfect. Like, every... It's, it's more than just a superhero film. It also tells really complex themes of morality, corruption and philosophic conflicts it the music is top-notch by Hans Zimmer no less the characters are really interesting great acting great direction this is really a masterpiece in filmmaking and to show my further love for it I've seen since watching this film I've seen it 50 times and each time it gets better wow. I've saw it more times than I have <laughs> it's I just recently rewatched it some months ago. I want to say around early 2020, early or mid 2020. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's yeah. Even though it's over two hours, 30 minutes, it doesn't feel like it. It, it holds together as a film. Like you go from plot A to plot B, and it's, and it's there's no boring point. There's no point where it's boring. Exactly. Yeah, this is, and it's also, even though it came out more than 10 years ago, it will be remembered and become a classic for so many years to come. Yeah, did you see the recent news about it? Huh? Did you see the recent news? Like, it recently got into the National Film Registry. Oh, yes, yes. It's amazing. So that's, that's a big deal because they're the people that preserve movies. And, uh... So it's going to be talked about for years, probably. Yes, excellent. I mean, it's really... Yeah, it just happened great this week, I think. It's really great timing, too. And yeah, and also, it need, like more people need to start giving recognition to the superhero genre. And I'm glad we're making progress on that with Black Panther and Joker being the first two in the genre to be nominated for an Oscar for Best Picture. I know it didn't win anything, but it really is an honor to be nominated. No, well, Joker, Joaquin Phoenix won uh, Best Actor. That's true, yes. That's and, uh, and Logan was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. Mm. Really. So yeah, we're, we're having some progress. We are. Cheers to that. And that is all the time we have left. And our longest episode yet. It's almost like an epic, our season finale. Yeah, it's almost like the movie itself. Exactly, yeah. Thank you so much, Emmanuel, for coming over for our 2020 finale. I'm so glad to be here. I'm glad yeah. to 
I've spoken to you guys. I'm always glad to be able to come and talk movies with you guys. Of course. And... I gotta say, this being our final episode of the year, working on this show has really been such a pleasure. It really gave me something to do during this whole quarantine. And I really enjoyed doing this, talking about what I love with my friends and our guests too. It's really been such an honor. And I'd like to thank all of our friends and guests for following our show and staying with us even now. Aside from our VIP guest, Emmanuel Akinola, I'd also like to give a shout-out and thanks to our other guests, Adam Solway, our good friend Ben Goodman, Brendan Flaske, Diana De Gracia, Jonas Williams, our other good friend, John Swan, Kieran Rancourt, Maddie O'Toole, Dane's girlfriend, the lovely and talented Maria Camila Pereira, Mason Seville, Matthew Zahariah, Mirko Capuano, Samuela Manciani, Spencer Strykart, and Trevor Chambers. Thank you all for making this show spectacular. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for an amazing season of Sin City. Thank you, Emmanuel, for closing out the season with us and the year 2020. Couldn't have done it without you. And to all of our guests and listeners, we love you all. We'll see you in 2021. Awesome. Yes, we will. Thanks for having me. We'll see you all. And we wish you all a Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, and an early birthday to you, Emmanuel. Oh, thanks. So long. Thank you as well. Thank you. We'll be back next year for more immersive content here on Sin City, live for CMRU.ca.